Welcome back to the Science Fiction Film Podcast by LSG Media. I'm your host, Dean. I'm Matthew. And this time on the podcast, we bring you Apocalypse Now from 1979, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Matthew, did you know, before watching this movie, this time for the podcast, that that is a bull being slaughtered on camera? For real? For real. God damn. Uh, No, I did not. It looks very realistic. Oh, man. (laughs) it's for fucking sure. Yeah, it was, uh, that was, as soon as I saw it, I said, that has got to be real. There is no way that is not actually happening. Yeah, for Um, sure. So, yeah, what happened was is that it was marked to be killed by the tribe anyway, so they didn't kill it for the film. They filmed it being killed and put it in the movie. Damn, that's fucking intense, dude. Um, That first hit to the, I I don't want to belabor the point, but that first machete strike, the thing must have been razor sharp, by the way, to the back of its neck and its fucking legs just went under. Yeah, spine severed, done. It was dead on that first hit. Yeah, it was dying for sure. Um, it wasn't moving at all, but that was wild, dude. Especially the guy hacking it at the back. That's weird, like God, hacking at yeah. its ass. Like chopping at the haunches, yeah. I don't know what that's about, but yeah, that is a bull being killed on camera, and it is, uh, it's pretty intense. Um, I may have never told you this before, so here's my own war stories. Oh. Um, at a young age, I, uh, I, I had the, at the time... It seemed less affecting, but um, as I got older, I think it really affected me. But I had visited a slaughterhouse more than one time as a, as a as a young lad, as 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 probably somebody who was too young to visit a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Um, I had you know my step grandparents own a farm, and um, on weekends when my dad was building the house that we would live in, we we stayed there for a while for for a few years while he built the house. And um, that was the way he could do it and afford to do it. And um, so I had spent some time on a farm and I've seen many crazy things. I've seen, um, I've seen pigs castrated with razor Oof. blades. Yeah, yeah. Not castrated. Is castrated just balls? Just balls. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'll tell you, man, I, I remember I was maybe 11 or 12 and the, uh, my step-grandfather at the time was like getting the truck. So we, we, me and my, uh, my uncle, who was only like two years older than me, weird, right? (laughs) Got into the truck and off we went. And, and, um, the first thing I noticed besides hearing animals in a slaughterhouse was the smell. And, um, if you've never smelled blood in great quantity, it is pretty overwhelming. It does have a serious smell. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was really something. And, um, you know, I think, I think people tell themselves a lot of things to make themselves feel better about the food they eat. But um, I can assure you that those animals didn't want to be there. And I'm not saying I don't eat meat. I do. Um, I, I do. I do know that the more I reflect on those times as an older man with a sense of morality, that I sometimes go, you know what, I'm going to skip mammals for a bit here and focus on like <laughs> fish and chickens. Not to say that they're worthless, but perhaps somehow in my mind, I feel like they are. Um, right. Or they suffer less a little bit. Perhaps, maybe. perhaps they lack awareness. Um, and this isn't, this podcast isn't going to be about that. Just to say that when I saw that animal get killed in this movie, I went, whoa, that happened for real. And, uh, I've seen that happen countless times. And, um, yeah, it's pretty wild. If, um, if, if, if you, uh, if you enjoy bacon, boy, that's, um, 
I don't know if they still do it this way, but essentially they hang a pig upside down and they bleed it to death. And it's fucking horrific yeah. and it's noisy yeah. and messy. And um, I don't recommend seeing it if you don't have to, if you want to just eat your bacon and not think about it. It's but um, yeah. <laughs> cows, um, what, what made me think of it was the way the cow just sort of fell. And I recall very distinctly what they did then. So this had to be late 80s is they weren't using a bolt gun. I think he had a 20, he had some sort of rifle, um, not a giant caliber rifle. Um, it didn't make a huge mess, but I remember cow came out, walked, they walked it up to the, to the guy. He put a rifle to its head, shot it. It was kind of a muffled shot. And um, the cow literally, it was like you, it was as if you erased, it was like, as, you know, when you cut and paste in Photoshop, it was like if you cut his legs off. And his body went boom, straight down to the ground. Boom, yeah. right down. Oof. And I was Oof. like, wow, that was, uh, that was very brief and fast. And um, when it reminded me of the way this thing kind of awkwardly falls, um, it's tough to fake that stuff in film, yeah, you know, like especially real. in 1979. So watching this movie, I guess you could say reopen neural pathways in my brain that I don't often think about which is the days that I had visited the slaughterhouse as a, as a young lad, as a much too young of a lad. And, um, and thinking back on it about how I just kind of put it out of my head when I was a kid. You know what I mean? I just kind of yeah. did. It's like, th- those are things that are like, so they're, they already are so beyond your, your scope of processing that your brain's just like, I'm just going to put that out of the way for a while. There's not even going to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it was, it was a weird experience and, you know, I grew up shooting and stuff and I did a tiny bit of hunting when I was an adolescent and, and I haven't really since and not because I, again, again, it's very complicated, right? I, uh, my father hunts. I have a lot of, uh, family members that I love deeply that hunt and they eat what they hunt and I, and I'm into it. And, uh, I think it's a valuable skill, uh, especially yeah. for, you know, a primitive native culture. But um, there's a lot of complicated morality about the reality of it. And um, boy, did this movie in that moment with these people hacking that cow to death, for real, by the way, if you haven't seen this fucking movie, was uh, was pretty wild. I'd never seen um, I'd never seen it done quite that way before. <laughs> no, it's pretty. No, it was, but yeah, like at, at the end of the day, you know, it's one of these the where it's placed in the movie. It's like to drive home the horror and the violence and the brutality. But when you stop and really look at it, you're like, it's not really much worse than what we do to cows. Like that's you're killing it no matter what. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a weird kind of thing. It's um, and you know, Rogan talks about this on his podcast, which is one of the reasons he kind of forced himself to hunt because of our disassociation with where food comes from, and on a, on a large scale, I mean, you know, right? Yeah, and a lot of the in a lot of the. I guess you'd say hypocrisy in uh, in the way people will say, oh, you shouldn't hunt deer, and then they'll go order a cheeseburger. So it's kind of like that's, <laughs> exactly. you're not really applying your morality consistently, which is a segue into the larger importance of this movie, which is, there is a wonderful thing about this movie, Matt, uh, Apocalypse Now, of course, and that is there is a real lack of the consistent application of morality. Oh yeah, that is kind of the core of this. It's so incredible. Boy, did I not appreciate this movie when I was a kid. I didn't like it that much as a kid. Yeah. I liked Platoon more because it was more combat driven. 100%. That's something we're, we're exactly the same as. You know, when I was obsessed with war movies between the ages of like, you know, especially from like 9 to 15, I was like all about war movies, trying to collect them all, see them all. And I definitely watched Apocalypse Now in that that reign. And I... 
I enjoyed it, but it was towards the bottom of my list. I was like, eh, I'd rather watch Full Metal Jacket or or We Were Soldiers or something like that for my Vietnam movies or Platoon. Um, I liked it, and I could I, I almost even had the sense of like, there's more to this movie. There's definitely more, but I just don't I don't get it, and it's not what I was looking for at that age. Um, I was looking for, you know, I, I was already kind of past the old school, even though I still watch them, but like the old school, you know, ooh rah fucking John Wayne wars kick ass movies. I was into you know the darker, more realistic and grim war movies, and I appreciated that that darker aspect to it. But this sure. man, Apocalypse Now, is a different level. Like that's, I think it's beyond a, a lot of people. It's a hard movie to even tackle. Mm. Yeah, I I think it it it's funny. It, it, uh, looking back on, I really need to watch Platoon again. Yeah, um, me too. I've seen Full Metal Jacket recently, recently-ish. But um, I think I think I'd like to go. I think those are kind of like the the big three for me in terms of Vietnam. And um, I have um, I have really fallen into my own head with this Apocalypse Now movie. Obviously, the stuff I just talked about, Slaughterhouse, right? The butchering of the of the of the buffalo in this film. But just beyond all that shit, into just the idea of morality and what it means and war and what that means and a lot of the stuff discussed in this movie i just was utterly fascinated by and to top it all off one of the other things that i think by the way this movie's fucking great oh yeah one of the things about this i know right how original in 2019 somebody says apocalypse now is great whoa controversial dude oh bold um, but it is uh, a wonderful, a wonderful step into our psyche. It's a wonderful step into what makes us people, especially at our worst and at our best, which is some of the things Willard actually talks about in terms of war. And um, in Vietnam, and especially this part of the war where these men served, boy, was it a fucking butcher, a butcher's delight. Ugh, absolutely. So yeah, man, uh, I, I'm yeah, excited to get into this movie. Um, there's a lot of shit to talk about in this movie. Oh, and yeah. um, in, in, in yes, we watched the normal person one. We didn't watch the two towers extended version uh, one. The three hour and 17 minute version. Get of, of the course fuck not. out of here. Yeah, that's uh, if I'm not Sorry. watching a movie that long, I'm just not and doing hey, it. And I have seen that version. I've seen the Redux one before. And it, it does, it adds some things that are... Have. There's interesting elements there and all, but man, the meat of the story is here in the theatrical. Like we can we can watch this, right? Uh, let it be known that this was our monthly vote from our members. Our members mm-hmm. get to vote every month in our monthly polls, as we're fond of telling you. Obviously, we don't push membership a ton that much on these episodes anymore. And uh, we just do our little monthly drive where we give you the bonus episode. But anytime we do cover one that's been voted on, I am compelled to tell you that that's how it came to be. So John Marginson, every month, he makes wonderful polls for all of our listeners. And um, those listeners get to vote. And uh, they have some voting power. And this was March Madness, which is perfect. And in March Madness, John took a list of five protagonists that uh, were descending into madness in the in their movies, and um, the movies were Apocalypse Now, which of course is the winner, Black Swan, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, Taxi Driver, and There Will Be Blood. So five toughest toughest vote in a while. Five that's a, great that's a movies. stacked last list. Yep, five five killer movies, and um, I was personally kind of pulling for Taxi Driver, even though There Will Be Blood is one of my favorites on the list. Um, because I think Taxi Driver has a lot going on to talk about. I think they all do, personally. I think it's a great oh, yeah. pull. 
Um, so shout out to John. But um, I was, um, after, I wasn't, I was like, ugh, I kind of didn't want to do Apocalypse Now. And then I watched it and I thought, holy shit, do I want to do it more than ever? <laughs> I, yeah, I got to agree. I was pulling for There Will Be Blood. Uh, but watching this again, it's been a solid shit eight, nine years since I've seen this. And I was like, yeah, fuck, I'm excited about this. Indeed. So for more details, go to liberstreetgeek.net slash join and you'll learn all about membership benefits, Okay. All right. Well, oh yeah, Hamburger Hill, they're saying in the chat, Pat Harrington. I remember that movie as well. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah Deer yeah. Hunter. Deer Hunter. Oh, that one's a depressing one. Of course. It's also Deer like Hunter. 17 hours long, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. Good flick. Um, so yeah, this, uh, this, is, uh, this is a hell of a film to tackle. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it, talking about it, and really spending some time on uh, the more important stuff of the movie. A lot of the. There's, there's two main big things here, and that's a lot of the ideas presented in it, a lot of the uh, hypocrisy and the morality, the darkness, a lot of the uh, metaphorical masks and shit like this. And then there's, of course, also the, the cinematography in that part of the film, um, which is pretty wild once they hit the river. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. God. The visuals of this movie, the play with shadows and light and darkness. Oh, yeah. I'm so into it. It's really good. So why don't we start where we always do, Matthew? Let's start in the beginning. Indeed. With, boy, uh, one of the most iconic beginnings for a movie ever. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I remember reading about how this kind of revitalized interest in the doors, by the way. Like, huh. 19, you know, it's not like they had just dropped off the map or anything. But if you'll notice, a lot more doors stuff started coming out in the Jim Morrison, you know, the doors movie by Oliver Stone was coming out in the 80s. Uh, this was 1979. And the end, uh, I think this I think it even actually went up on the charts after this movie. Awesome. Uh, yeah, great, a great pick. Uh, it's very atmospheric, this particular song. A lot of the lyrics, right, of elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end. No safety or surprise, the end. I'll never look into your eyes again. Um, just, you know, so limitless and free, desperately in need of a stranger's hand in a desperate land. Just good shit, man. Um, just, just works perfectly for the movie, um, which is this descent towards the end, this inexorable pull towards the end. Not to mention a very apocalyptic tone and watching the entire landscape go up in flames. Sure, sure, yeah. That's exactly what we see in the beginning. And some of these shots, man, the flames dancing around his hair. Um, I like the way they superimpose the helicopters flying over him. Uh, I like the way they just put us in his headspace. Exactly. Like this is, you know, in a sense we're watching this happen, but also I think at the same time it's almost just a, a collage of memories he's had of just destruction in the jungle and watching, you know, what at first really is a beautiful landscape just get consumed in seconds, gone. Yeah, by fire, um, the ever-present fire and death. And uh, we are introduced to Willard, of course, played by Martin Sheen. And uh, we are seeing this man's life, um, this man's inability to... Uh, this, this open, I think, says so much for the entirety of the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it sets him up 
as somebody who's already and I mean the way he talks about it too it's it's paradoxical because he's talking about you know and he he's already been home that's an interesting thing about him too is that he's been back to the states he's been in Vietnam and come back and then gone back to Vietnam and he talks about you know whenever I was here I just wanted to be home but whenever I was home I just couldn't wait to get back to the jungle like this weird fluctuating state of hating this and loving this and feeling comfortable within it and also feeling disgusted by it I mean, he's really it just his instability is on full display here in this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just a man spinning out of control. Yeah, and it, and it's and this is the this is the the ultimate. <laughs> this is one of the ultimate great challenges of of life in the military, especially combat veterans who've been in these terrible situations, and that's this this ex- expectation of us as as the citizen body for them to decompress and attempt to reintegrate themselves into society it's almost like okay you did 10 years in prison and you're coming out ugh you know obviously that's a, a little bit different but almost similar in that you're living under a different rule set you're living as a different type of being so totally. to speak yeah um also i do want to quickly shout out josh he wanted to be on this episode um, I invited him to come on it a while ago, but he had something um, that required his presence. Um, he was meeting with an old friend of his um, that was in the Marine Corps with him. So I, uh, I said, of course, <laughs> don't don't mention it, man. I, uh, I, totally. you, we will think of you in spirit, and I hope you have a good night hanging out with your pal. I feel the presence of Josh lingering over me. There you go. So I, um, yeah, I, every minute I stay in this room, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. (laughs) Each time I look around, the walls moved in a little tighter. And dude, another thing that this movie and Kurtz, once we actually get to, to Colonel Kurtz, like it talks, he talks about it more too, but this whole movie also really drives home the fact that like, and I think this is something that even other Vietnam movies don't talk about much, that we lost this war, man, essentially. Like, we were pushed out of it by Charlie squatting in the bush. We thought we were the biggest bad boy in town, came in, and, dude, they repelled us. They repelled the French. They repelled the Japanese. It's been an unconquerable little scrappy fucking country, man. Yeah, absolutely. The Kurtz, um, Kurtz goes into detail on that. He does. He does. And, uh, and, he, and he makes some good points, you know. It's uh, it, it, his his points about that stuff are very important, and um, it is it is always it is always at one's willingness to go where you are uncomfortable or unwilling to go. Yeah. Um, that is something that is true in so many things from life and from from death and war to even simpler things. You know the the ability to do that which others will not do is is something that separates. I think the great individual from the average, you know, right. There's a lot of Nietzsche in this movie. <laughs> There's <laughs> one thing he was always fond of saying was that people are basically just relatively average and unremarkable by and large <laughs> with the occasional <laughs> exception, you know? And, um, and what, what we see here in the beginning with Willard is him losing his shit in his room. And I, I, <laughs> This is this is the perfect introduction to the movie because we see his madness. Madness is a big theme in Apocalypse Now. Oh yeah. And we don't know what's going on in his head. We just know what he narrated. 
we just know about his confusion. And that really is what what an what an odd and paradoxical thing to find yourself stuck in. And this this movie is full of paradox, right? Full of paradox, full of full of dramatic irony and full of hypocrisy. And, just like the um, clashing of, you know, opposite poles, you know, the duality of man. It's a, you know, Joker makes light of it in Full Metal Jacket, but it is on full raw display here. You know, <laughs> the, the order versus chaos within, within society, within our individual selves. Indeed, yeah. And it, and it sets us up watching him behave the way he is. Because we see Kurtz with a almost a similar mindset, in a sense, not not literally losing his shit and punching mirrors, but you know, and we see that here. We see almost like he is. What is he fighting? Right. That's that's one of the things I love about this intro. It seems you might laugh at it and go, "Oh, he's in his underwear and doing karate kata and punching a mirror," but then there's the pay attention. What is he doing? He's punching nothing, and then he's punching a reflection of himself. Right. And I, I think this is a real pretty powerful illustration of the individual of this world and this like this chaotic war being plucked out of it and tossed into a hotel room just with 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 no like we've already talked about like decompression no debriefing he's just been plucked out of the horrors of war and now he gets to sit alone in a room i mean how do you cope how what do you what are you going to be thinking about only the worst things you've seen sure everyone gets everything he wants i wanted a mission and for my sins they gave me one Bought it, brought it up to me like room service. It was a real choice mission. And when it was over, I never want another. Ooh. And um, he gets ordered to Comsec and Natrang. Um, and uh, at first he thought he was getting arrested. And uh, they even <laughs> ask him, didn't you, uh, didn't you assassinate a, uh, some sort of, uh, what do they say, a government tax collector or something along those lines? <laughs> yeah, some kind of government official. But he says he was going to a place in the world that he didn't even know yet. Weeks away and hundreds of miles up a river that snaked through the war like a main circuit plugged straight into Kurtz. Ooh, it's so good. Mm. And I, you know, and we all know, too, uh, about how this, it's not based on Heart, uh, Heart of Darkness, but it's very much inspired by it and kind of playing with the same themes. But I love the the imagery that it uses of, you know, the river being veins that lead back to the source, aka the heart. Like this evil is pumping out of one place and they're following it back to the source. Indeed. Uh, and, so and, and I like that you use the word evil because good God, are we going to talk a lot about that? Ooh, yeah. Oh boy. Evil, evil. gets confusing. Oh, here. does it ever? <laughs> does it ever? People with a real black and white sense of morality, uh, it's gonna be a tough watch for you. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting film to say the least. Good ideas put forward, but we uh, we meet this uh, we meet these gentlemen, Colonel Lucas, of course, a young Harrison Ford, and we learn that Willard assassinated a government tax collector. Of course, he denies it, but um, they invite him to eat some lunch, and that's when this General Corman, who's an interesting character, this guy is full of contradiction. Oh, yeah. General Corman asks Willard over lunch if he's ready for duty, if he's fit. Are you? I mean, they're just looking at him pouring sweat, just like, (laughs) yeah, I definitely wasn't just fucking ranting in my hotel room and smashing my hand into a mirror. I'm cool. I'm good to go. Mm, Yeah. They listen to the tape, and uh, you have Brando saying, I watched the snail crawl along the edge of a straight razor. That's my dream. That's my nightmare. Crawling, slithering along the edge of a straight razor and surviving. 
what a what an image. So many great. I, I wrote. I think I wrote verbatim about most of the dialogue in this movie. I was going bananas with notes today. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's so it, much. It's yeah. just crucial. Um, but yeah, he talks about incinerating them pig after pig, right? Village after village, army after army. And they call me an assassin. What do you call it when the assassins accuse the assassin? <laughs> I have that note in bold. What yeah, do you yeah. call it when the assassins accuse the assassin? That is a great summation of this film. Absolutely. Because I mean, that gets down to the whole bizarre. I mean, I, I feel like there might not be a better movie uh, especially as far as war movies go, that capture the kind of surreal quality of this, of the legalization of murder in the in this context. Like, I mean, that's, at the end of the day, you know, you can talk about it being justified and righteous, and maybe so, but it is still killing. And there's a very bizarre, paradoxical, absurd quality to the idea of people who, you know, Kurtz talks about it at the end, of like ordering the firebombing of thousands of people, yet being bothered by the individual murder of one person, and now that's bad, and we're going to condemn you for it. Like, that is a bizarre thing to, to, to be, think about in to, war. You know, his example, Kurtz's example at the end of the film, and, and we're kind of jumping it, but fine. His example at the end of the film is even more absurd yeah. because it's, you're going to firebomb a village, but you don't let these young men write fuck on the plane. <laughs> right, because it's obscene. I mean, that's this movie in a nutshell. It, it just highlights the absurdity of it all. It's just crazy. You know, yeah, it's the, it highlights the absurdity of war. It's an absurd prospect. Yeah, it's, it's right? totally insane. We're going to go liberate people by killing hundreds of thousands of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's insanity, right? And Corman tells Willard that Kurtz was once a, once a great, like a humanitarian. He joined the special forces after that. His ideas and methods became unsound. And it's not just the overall theme, but right down to every individual interaction is just riddled with hypocrisy. Corman is the greatest offender, even though he touches upon it in his dialogue, right? right? He says, in this war, things get confused out there. Power, ideals, the old morality, and practical military necessity. But out there with these natives, it must be a temptation to be God. Because there's a conflict in every human heart between the rational and the irrational, between good and evil, and good does not always triumph. Sometimes the dark side overcomes what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, Every man has got a breaking point. You and I have them. Waltz reached his, and very obviously, he has gone insane. And that's when they give the order to terminate his command, and they hand him a cigarette. Terminate his command with extreme, what does he say? Uh, Prejudice. Prejudice, yeah. Yep. Oof. So here we have a man, General Corman, who is bathing in the delusion of a higher morality. He's bathing in the delusion of moral superiority. And oh, that's why, and I'm not sure what this says about me, why I, I almost philosophically understand Kurtz and almost respect him more than I do a guy like Corman. Oh, definitely. No, I can't wait. And I, I don't want to jump the gun on this yet. No, I think it's we better won't. for us to, to get there. But Let's I, talk about I think, Corman, though, because we, we... But go ahead. Yeah. But no, all I was going to say is that I actually do believe that Kurtz might be the most honest character in the entire movie. That's for sure truthful character that's for sure he's not he's not mincing words here or actually the other you know there's a striking because as the movie goes on and especially by the end there the parallels between willard and kurtz draw closer and closer and closer and there i think he sees himself as being on a similar path as kurtz but i think an interesting contrast with them is that when we're introduced to willard he's already in an incredibly low state and in his life and as a man uh, but with Kurtz, we established that not only was he just, oh, a, a good soldier, a normal soldier, 
No, I mean, being groomed to become a general, to to become you know in a high official in government, you know, absolutely high standing. There's a picture of him shaking hands with General Westmoreland, the highest commanding general of the Vietnam War, born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, by the way. Uh, but he was at the upper echelons of all this, the, the most decorated soldier. I think it even said like a Rhodes Scholar, went to Harvard, all of this shit. And he has descended. Like, I think it's interesting to see him going from almost the highest form of, uh, you know, Apollonic order down to the most chaotic Dionysian fucking chaos. Corman, you're saying? No, no, no. I'm talking about Kurtz. Okay, there. Kurtz. But, uh, okay. but, th- but this whole scene is them establishing how how highly regarded he once was. Yeah, yeah. And in in and it's funny because Corman, you know, as Corman tells the story. I like to observe this almost horror he has upon his face as he thinks about Kurtz. And it's not because I think he thinks Kurtz is horrific. I think it's because he thinks that Kurtz is a reflection of him and of the armed forces in general. Yeah, I At least in their involvement in Vietnam. And not just a reflection or a, a like a distorted, you know, almost, well, not even distorted, almost like the more raw truth of war, like being displayed in him and his kind of savagery. But I also think in the back of his mind, he thinks this could spread. Like this could, what Kurtz is, is a disease that could infect, you know, all, all of us, that he could become Kurtz. And I'll see you a we could become Kurtz and raise you a we are Kurtz. <gasps> A million points, sir. We are sitting here with our lunch in our pressed uniforms. They're very starchy, and we're drinking our drinks and smoking our cigarettes, and we're surrounded by civilization. We're surrounded by a nice lamp and a statue of a little um, elephant, and we have clocks and watches, and we're surrounded by these things that we have invented to make life easier on us, to make life more convenient on us. Here we are. Men that have undoubtedly, undoubtedly ordered the massacre of hundreds of people. And we're going after a man for literally killing four people. Yeah. Yeah. And I also love this notion that... Uh, Hold on. Don't go past it. Let that sink in. Oh, yeah. No. Corman is utterly absurd. Absolutely. And I I want to dig into it further by saying I, I think that was actually them going after Kurtz with those charges is what broke Kurtz into full fucking insanity. That that absurd notion of you legalize murder every single day and I go after these four who I actually had evidence on and built a case around and prosecuted and executed, and now I'm a criminal. And I think that was honestly his tipping point. Them trying to, to assert this paradoxical order over something inherently chaotic like war is what broke Kurtz. Like, they did it almost. Mm. Do you think Kurtz is broken? We'll we'll have to table that for now. Yeah, table. Table. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if he has, if it was a, a single thing that broke him or if he has just sort of descended into this primordial nature of, of man and war. Yeah. No, mm. I mean, I think there's there's plenty of to meet to talk about on there. Uh, we'll just have to wait until that. But yeah, section. that's... Um, that's that's one of the things this the absurdity of this entire meeting is just is just dripping with irony as these men sit here with again this delusion of a of some sort of moral superiority right and I mean I, I think especially like you've already kind of touched on it really just the absurdity of all these very nice sounding rules set down on paper to legislate the horrors of war like that that's almost more absurd than the individual act of killing. 
Mm. So um, off he goes, and um, we get the helicopter shots, and he says, how many people have already killed Willard Wonders? There were those six that I know about for sure. Close enough to blow their last breath in my face, but this time it was an American and an officer. This wasn't supposed to make any difference to me, but it did. Charging a man with murder in this place was like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Obviously, he touches upon these things that we were just talking about, but he does say he took the mission and he's uh, being ferried down the coast in a Navy PBR. Mm-hmm. Dude, that that choice in and of itself to accept the mission. I mean, he talks about it, like, what the fuck else was I going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, that he knows nothing else. Like, if I, I've, <laughs> a man without a mission, he's going to be in his hotel room destroying himself. Right. So Chief Phillips says that he pulled, uh, we meet Chief, the Chief of the Boat, right? We meet basically uh, Chef, which is Fishburne. We meet Lance. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Clean is Fishburne. Chef is yeah. the white dude with the Raleigh Fingers mustache, the uh, cook from <laughs> uh, Louisiana. Yep, yep. Uh, Chef Lance, Clean, and Chief Phillips. Jesus Christ, man. We got three C's. Chef, Clean, and Chief. <laughs> yeah, here's our crew and all of them. You know, the first observation he has on them of they seem like fucking kids. Mm-hmm. Rock and rollers with one foot in the grave. <laughs> I mean, fucking Fishburne, 17. Jesus. He looks so goofy. (laughs) He's so lanky and goofy. He's not Uh, the stud that he becomes in uh, mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, that's for sure. (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street 3. (laughs) Uh, Chief Phillips says that he pulled special ops around the area. He brought another guy in once who ended up shooting himself in the head. So they just kind of bullshitting. And uh, they listen to the radio. They listen to a man talking about Saigon. Good morning, Vietnam, by the way. Hey, that's, that's Rob Williams himself right there. Yep. Um, and Willard looks over some things. Uh, the lads listen to Satisfaction, and uh, they water ski, they dance. Um, Dude, one thing I want to say. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to say about Lance in particular, even just the way he's introduced, the way he talks about him, the way Captain Willard does, he's like, you wouldn't even believe, he, believe he'd ever fired a weapon. A surfer from the beaches of LA. Um, and the very first shot of him is him with his eyes closed, holding up the little reflection pad to get his tan. Mm-hmm. Like he is specifically, and for one, I mean, it's a real interesting point that he's the only other person of this crew that survives with, with Willard. Lance. Uh, yeah, Lance. And yep. he is in my opinion, the most empty vessel among them. Like he is, he is the least defined man of this, of this crew. He's a very just kind of, he just goes with the wind. Like he's this empty person. I, I want to talk about that more as it goes on. Hmm, interesting. <clears throat> you find him like empty versus the bigger personalities of the rest of them, basically. Yeah, but also not even just personality, but like he seems like a very, and I don't mean it in an insulting way, but like a simple person, just kind of open and simple and just a born follower (laughs) in a way too. Like he's just this kind of simple creature. Hmm, Interesting. I'm curious as to, uh, um, I'd like to hear you articulate your thoughts on that. Yeah. Oh, I will by the end. Compared to the rest of the guys, I mean, I don't know if I see the distinction, but I like where your head's at. Um, One thing I do like is that I like how we have... I like how we have these men engaging in activities that they would probably engage in at home. Right, right. And they're just living their normal fucking teenage lives, dicking around. And of course, Willard thinks about the dossier, right? He, the voiceover says, uh, I thought they handed me the wrong one. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. I heard his voice on the tape and it really put the hook in me, but I couldn't connect the voice with this man. He had an impressive career. Perfect. 
And um, he was 30 fucking eight when he joined the Airborne. Why the fuck would he do that? 96 joined Special Forces, returns to Vietnam after already having a great career. Right. And I think it should be noted too that he was in Vietnam incredibly early in 1964. And if you were, if you were American military in Vietnam in 64, you were among the earliest advisors. There weren't even other, there weren't large battalions of soldiers there. There were a couple thousand advisors, you know, basically training the Southern Vietnamese forces. So he has been there about as long as you could have possibly served in Vietnam. Yep. And that's when uh, we come across the Air Cav. <laughs> oh, boy. A little early, a little ahead of schedule. They weren't expecting to see these guys for another 30 kilometers, I believe they said. Exactly, yeah. And they were just too horny for war, ready to go now. Yep. Uh, first of the ninth, I believe, uh, an old cavalry division that cashed its horses in for choppers and went tear-assing around Nam looking for, sh- for the shit. They'd given Charlie a few surprises in their time. That's it. And we walk in on one of these surprises happening. Mm. They're uh, bulldozing a, vo- a village, to put it simply. That's it. Yep. Scorching it. And um, we see uh, Kilgore tossing air cav cards onto the bodies. His calling uh-huh. card, so to speak. Jesus. That's, dude, that right there is already one of those things like, and we think we're better than them? <laughs> like, and there are, if you look, there are definitely dead kids among those bodies. Oh, like, oh yeah. Definitely civilians in here. Uh, I think that's the point. I think that's the whole point of the movie. Exactly. Uh, also, quick thing: he, I, when they when they're first getting onto the beach, getting off the boat, and you know, heading up there, they pass the the filmmaker saying, "Just keep going, keep going. I, don't, don't look at the camera. Don't look at the camera. You're, mm-hmm. Just act like you're fighting." Um, that's Francis Ford Coppola, for one. That's his right. cameo in the movie. Uh, but yeah, what an already interesting, you know, in 1979, already a criticism of just constant media coverage of this. And uh, like the artifice of media covering an actual war and being like, but pretend you're fighting for the camera. Like that's fucking bizarre too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we uh, we see that um, he encounters the man who's holding his guts in with a pan cover. God. And and despite the fact that he's VC, Kilgore decides that this man's brave for uh, for this action. And that's he, it. And he commends him. And he seems prepared to be interested in helping him until he is distracted by surfing. <laughs> surfing. Charlie, don't surf. Right? Jesus he meets Christ, the man. pro surfer. He meets the pro surfer. I forget his name. Mike, maybe? Lance. Lance is the pro surfer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> but yeah, he treats him immediately like a celebrity. Like it's, it's already such a weird contrast of seeing this high-ranking, you know, dude, this guy commanding the scene and, you know, runs into probably like a private or corporal, you know, uh, in Lance. And he's like, wait, you're that, Lance? Wow, we're real big fans of you, Lance. Like it's already just, he's like starstruck. Mm, yeah. What what's your take on this on this whole meeting with Kilgore this whole introduction to him? It's to me it's kind of the take on the classic to be honest like John Wayne style war hero of this big bold brash personality just going in there not giving a damn about the violence getting it done you know in his mind it's just nothing but victory all around him these are the spoils of war uh, but they're going to go on to proceed to attack even further you know later on not too far from now actually but. 
to open up an area in the, the Delta that can be surfed. Like, that's the reason they go in and attack more and kill more people. And he sees just no contradiction in that, no irony of that. Like, oh, yes, this is a glorious victory and we're, we're being good people winning a war here. But uh, it's time to go surf. It's time to continue the attack in order for us to surf. We're the good guys. And that mm. is baffling. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty to discuss there. He... Kilgore had a pretty good day for himself. He basically turned the LZ into a beach party. Uh, the more they tried to make it like home, the more everybody missed it. He wasn't a bad officer. He loved his boys, and you felt safe with him. He had a weird light around him, and you knew he wouldn't get a scratch here. Mm, right? What My, a what a completely different character from everybody else in this movie, too. Mm-hmm, right. Um, Mike, uh, excuse me, the surfer talks about how the surfing's great. Kilgore had no idea. Lynn says it's, you know, it's hairy. It's Charlie's point, but it is really good here. I guess historically he just knew this. But yeah, there is something about, it's funny because for a moment he had this respect for this VC soldier who was brave enough to fight while his guts were hanging out by holding a pan over them. And that's quickly interrupted by the surfing. But but with Kilgore, it's really nothing personal. And that's, I think, what we're seeing right away. That he just happens to be like, we're on this side, you're on that side, and that's just the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. Kilgore, almost- Kilgore isn't a man who spends much time thinking about this philosophically. And if he does, he definitely doesn't show it. Right, right. I mean, to him, I think it is, uh, he sees it much more as a, a game to win. And these are just the, the, the necessary pieces that have to fall sometimes. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's when he just says, listen, I have Air Mobile. Um, and don't worry about the depth of the Delta. We'll get you through it. We'll pick your boat up. I'll help you hold the point for as long as you need to. And that's that. Crazy, man. Just to fucking go surf. How good I is mean, Duvall? The, 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 the flight of the Valkyries? No, no, no. How good is Duvall? Oh, Duvall? Oh, he's fucking fantastic. Incredible. He's, I mean, he just lives in this role. Like, he, he's just so... Like I was saying, he he stands out in this movie, this character even, um, from everyone else for exactly the reason, the line that Willard says. Like, he's not going to get a scratch. He's the person who's going to go home from this and speak of it as a big conquering adventure. Like, he's the one He's the one that the American public wants to see. Yep, absolutely. And, um, man, their walk, there's that great walk where he just says, look, I think it's right after Charlie Don't Surf, and that's the tracking shot of them heading over to the uh, heading over to the helicopters, literally putting surfboards on the helicopters, and uh, and then firing up the bugle. He's got a bugle guy standing there to signal a charge, like an old cavalry charge. Exactly. Oh my god, man. And not to mention, too, just the total bedlam of the scene around them. Or, or actually, no, no, I'm jumping the gun. This, that's actually the part of the next scene. Yeah. I'll, I'll hold. Just, just wild. Just a wild fucking moment. <laughs> but yeah, he's in also in the middle of talking about, you know, the weight of surfboards. Like, oh, do you prefer a light one or, you know, a heavier one? And, he, and he's like, oh, definitely heavy. He's like, well, I thought you guys preferred, you know, the lighter board. And then, oh, hold on. I got to get on the radio. Everybody assume attack formation. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Yep. Again, it's just a, a job, you know? It's not just a job. It's nothing but, but, man, the shots of the helicopters over the top of the palm trees as they cross the river. It's incredible looking. Oh, yeah. So many Fantastic. great moments. So many great shots in this flick. And this is, you know, one of the most classic fucking war movie scenes, the flight of the Valkyries, that they're actually, I, I had forgotten until this viewing, 
that they're actually playing that music. Like they have speakers on yeah. their helicopters and they're yeah. blasting it. I'd forgotten. I was like, I thought that was just music in the movie, but holy shit, that's the music they are playing as they swoop down and just machine gun people. What do they call that? Diegetic? Yep. Diegetic. It is within the film. It is a diegetic piece of music. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, let's have a listen. I never have got used to a light force. I can't get used to right it. So fucking crazy. (laughs) So crazy, man. As they just bomb in on their choppers. Shit. Jesus. And I mean, you know, and that's what we see next here too, I think is another, it's really, it's played for the contrast of, you think this is a a heroic thing you're doing while you have just absolutely, utterly overwhelming force and, and, and technology and you're just obliterating this fucking place. Yeah, I don't think Kilgore cares about the heroics of it. I just think nah. he cares about the awesomeness of it all, the awe, right? right? Aww. Aww, to him, man. it's just, you know, you guys are savages, and we're here to fuck you up, and that's that, and we're going to fuck that's you it. up. I don't got to think about it for a second longer. Yep, <clears throat> and that's kind of just the way it goes. And, and this is what you have. You have these villagers with VC among them, and um, boy, it gets awfully uh, hairy, awfully complicated. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, the only real even opposition they have is the 50 cal that's, you know, shooting at them, and they spot that almost immediately. Arlie Ermy spots that, by the way. Yeah, uh, crazy. And they just swoop in and take that out fucking almost immediately. I mean, I think they have maybe one helicopter down. Yep. Well, one that gets grenaded when it lands. There's that one, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, when they're when they're coming across and they're making their move and the guys are fleeing, obviously there's there's this incredible moment. But one of the things I really enjoyed about this scene, well, no, no, those guys with AKs and stuff, that'll that'll get you, that'll kill you if if they hit that fucking copter the right way and it hits a pilot, uh, hits a passenger. Oh yeah, that shit where he says they're sitting on their helmets so they don't get their balls blown off. That's awesome, and just what a cool detail, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, they talked to somebody who probably said they did that somewhere, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's just a rumor that has spread because everybody wants to keep their balls. Right. But uh, yeah, there is this um, There's this great moment where we're listening to the, uh, uh, the Wagner piece and suddenly it cuts and it goes right to the, to the village. I mean, it cuts mid-note, which is a right. wild way to do it. And in, in the way they cut to the people starting to flee, and then we hear the ride of the Valkyries off in the distance. What a great touch. It really is, yeah. It's it's scary. I mean, like, you see them all starting to fucking, you know, run and go for cover. And, like, it kind of puts you in that, that moment of, for sure. God, just an encroaching massive force that you can really barely oppose. Yep, absolutely. Yep, they spot uh, our boy uh, Harley Army start, spots, the, uh, spots the 50 cal in the open. And uh, they just start laying waste to everybody. I mean, it is, um, it's beaten. Eric have, uh, didn't fuck around. Not at all. And also after they fucking, after he gets the shot in on the 50 cal, ah, great shot, red team. I'll have to get you a case of beer for that one. Right. Yeah. I can dig that. <laughs> get you a round of fucking cold ones for that warfare. Hell yeah. And I'm blowing away the fucking children running. That's where it gets a little dicey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, yeah, great, just great shots in this movie. We're seeing the chaos from above. And um, like I said, and like you were saying, Kilgore is just in between issuing attack orders. He's talking about the surfing. Yeah, exactly. You know, Kilgore has this attitude about him, this cavalier attitude about him, which is just like, we're going to get it done. We're going to have fun. No big deal. I'm literally drinking coffee, I think, as we fly around. Even when the flares, a flare hits the helicopter and goes inside, he's like, oh, it's fine. Just, just get it out of here. You know, it's, he has, he has a way about him as described by Willard on, with his voiceover. That's just like, you knew he wasn't getting a fucking scratch. Right. And he never thought for a second he would. Exactly. No, no fear about him at all. Nope. It's just a, uh, what an interesting mindset to be in. What a, what an interesting way to be about the whole thing. Right. Just totally, and that's what, that's why I keep coming to that. And I agree with you actually <clears throat> that uh, Kilgore Kilgore probably doesn't even think about this in the sense of heroics, but he does have that old school war is an adventure mentality about. Yeah, him. absolutely. Uh, he, he does not. You know, there is no war is hell quote floating around in his head. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Hmm. But uh, they touch down and uh, they offload and they dig in and they're taking some fire. Um, I believe they got mortars on the beach and they're trying to move into the village. And um, we just see these guys moving in and fucking doing a ton of hellacious damage. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, yep, we see, uh, we see one of the uh, GIs has his leg blown off, and uh, it's just madness. Great Dutch, yeah. touch, Dutch tilts, all kinds of cool shit going on here. But um, that's, that's the moment when they send in the medevac chopper and a, uh, a Vietnamese woman runs up and tosses a grenade into it. That's right. And, and dude, that thing blows up, multiple guys dead, guys rolling out of it on fire and everything. And Kilgore's I like, oh, the fucking savages. Yeah, After exactly. After doing 10 times as much damage as that. And it's not even that. It's, it, it's not even that. It's just the, the casual nature of yeah. all of those guys in your division just getting wasted. Right, right. That's even more crazy to me. Like, I could see him being like, ah, fucking savages. But I, but, but to say it as a result of watching your men on fire on the deck, mm-hmm. just getting blown to shit and just being lax, uh, aloof to the point of like, ah, you know, right. fucking. And that's, uh, that's, to me, it, it, this is like a very hard concept to get into and explain, but like, it makes me always wonder about people like him is like, what do they think of death? Like literally death itself. What is it? What does that mean to die? Um, nothing. And it's like nothing. Like, and like, yeah. I almost think he sees it as just like a removal. Like, ah, they're just removed now. They're just not in my life. The same as like you, you say goodbye to a friend and they move away and you don't talk to them anymore. He's just like, ah, they're just gone. I don't think about them mm-hmm. anymore. They're, that they're just not here. I'm focused on the people who are still here. That's or, it. Like, or, or even, or even his own. I, I wonder how we would face his own demise. He'd probably just be like, ah, oh, yeah, I had a good run, though. <laughs> right? I actually agree. Yeah, they yeah. just be like, oh, bleeding out like a soldier. That's how it goes. And, and remember, he he gets into the wave talk. Exciting, huh? No, no, the waves. And just the way he's saying, look, the way they split, one goes one way, one goes right. They break. Watch them. And he's pointing it out. And and Willard has this look like, you got to be kidding me. This is what this guy's talking about. After he just had a medevac chopper get wasted. Right. So bizarre. It's pretty fucking, I mean, I'm not saying fucking cry about it. (laughs) But he's just, he's cavalier, which is perfect. Because cavaliers were impetuous men that rode horses. (laughs) He just breezes right by it. Like, Like I've said, like to him, death is just kind of a, 
a removal. Like there, there's not any emotion to it. It's just, well, they're gone. Next. Yeah. On to the I'm, next thing. I mean, guys are hitting the beach as mortars erupt around him and he just seems unfazed. Totally. You know, the LZ is pretty hot, sir. Well, what do you know about surfing, Major? Totally changes the subject. <laughs> it, he's such an absurd character. It's so wacky to watch him. Oh, yeah. And he's just keep declaring that it's safe to surf this beach. It's safe. It's fine. If I say it's safe, it is. Yeah, if exactly. If, if I say it's safe, that's a great fucking line. Yeah, man. Tells you a lot about him. Yeah. Like, I think he, he's somebody who believes he is almost in charge of reality. Like, he believes that. Like, he believes, like, well, I'm fucking determining what's going on, and I, it's my say-so. I've given the order, so that is what it is. That is – that's the reality I'm seeing, the one I demand. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, <laughs> you, you talked about him. It's funny. You talked about him as almost like this John Wayne type. Yeah. And it's almost like he probably grew up watching that shit, and he's just, like, falling exactly. into the whole thing of it. Uh, as much as the movie wants to make him that way, I think he probably embraces that whole thing. Oh, you yeah, know? definitely. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, you know, argue against it. He'd be like, hell yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm the fucking Duke. Yeah, I'm the Duke. He's called Big Duke Six or something, right? Duke Six. Yeah. Man, it's funny. Yeah, in the chat, Maria's saying, hello, Maria. Hello, my dear. She's saying he's emotionally detached. And, and on the one hand, he is. But on the one hand, he isn't because he's quite emotional about surfing. <laughs> he really is. He's so hurt by that. Like when the mortars are going off in the water, that's like the only thing that pisses him off. You know, we've talked about this before and we've used different terms. And we've talked about it like this. We've said that it is like, what movie were we talking about? I don't remember what movie we were talking about. Maybe you'll remember as I start talking. But yeah. we were essentially talking about you and I go to work and do a thing. And while we're doing that thing, we can talk about something casual. So Matt, you go to your day job and somebody brings up surfing and say you're passionate about surfing. You go, oh yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, while you're doing that, you may be able to be actually doing some work. Right, right. That's like him, except with killing. <laughs> exactly. With, that's like men. him, except in the air cavalry, just bombing the shit out of people, right? That's it. It's, it's fucking true. wild, man. He's it's just multitasking. Wild. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's weird. It's, it's, it's as emotional as anything you might do eight hours a day that you just, that just is a job to. Now, obviously, I think he really is passionate about it and he loves doing it, but yeah, it is, uh, he is, uh, he's a larger-than-life character. He's, he is something else. Right. And also, I think it's a real telling line, even the way they film it. Um, you know, the camera's zooming in on him as he's talking about the smell of gasoline, the smell of napalm. Mm. You know, the famous line, uh, you know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, but the, I would say the more important line is where he's like, that smell, that you're surrounded by, by smell. You couldn't even see the bodies. The bodies of all of them were just gone, obliterated. And that smell smelled like victory. Mm. That's smelled it. like that's victory. All, that's all he thinks of when it comes to it. Doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the connotations of death and destruction and, and ruination to him. He's just like, yeah, it's victory. We won. We kicked their ass. Yeah, Moving and, there's, and, 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 and I agree. And I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Um, obviously, it's been said to death. I think the importance of it is obvious, and that's just the idea of saying that. That, that line is a great and poetic way to highlight the absurdity of war. Right, right. Really is. You love the smell of napalm in the morning because you're the one administering it to the foe. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's and and it means usually a good thing for you. If you do smell napalm, just like if you maybe hear those jets, you're like, fucking thank God, some relief. Right. Right. That's our support, our backup. And in, in, in Saving Private Ryan, he says, you know, is is he talking about the P fifty ones? He says angels on our yeah. shoulders. They're fucking Tank taking out tanks. And uh yeah, that's that's angels on our shoulders you're talking about these planes that are designed to destroy things that have people in them and that again is a wacky place to put yourself mentally but if you were in that position that captain miller was it was in you would think the same goddamn thing just like if you were in captain kilgore's position and napalm was being used on a tree line where you have a bunch of uh, vc operating uh, mortars that have the beach pre-sighted or pre-zeroed you'd be really happy when the napalm hit them fucks and they stopped dropping mortars on you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Smelled like victory is important, not just that, but the fucking line he says at the end of this, he says, someday this war is going to end. And he says it with a bit of melancholy in his voice. Yeah, he does, man. <laughs> and just walks away. That's the end of Kilgore. Yeah, pretty wild. Pretty fucking <laughs> wild. Oh, boy. And Willard repeats look- the words, right? If yeah. that's how Kilgore fought the war, I wonder what they had against Kurtz. Yes, exactly. Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> For real. Uh, because that's, at the end of the day, again, Kilgore right, is doing just, it by the book. Like he's, he's playing the game the way they want it to be played. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's, um, that's what's so hilarious about it. That's, that's what I said at the beginning, the delusion of moral superiority, because you have things written down on paper. Right. Right. You know, you, you some took, kind of convention you or took codes a and colored, all okay. you took a colored dye with your just barely above monkey language and you wrote down some rules and therefore you believe that your killing is more morally just than Kurtz's killings. That's hilarious to me. It, yeah, no, it really like that is that is the thing about that war about warfare just in general that I feel like people don't step back and, and think about enough of just like you know if, if somebody even came up and and punched you in the face and you turned and shot and killed them you're still going to go to jail for murder like it's mm-hmm. a would be a hard case for self defense but in this situation if you're a, you're a, an enlisted soldier and you 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 are in by all the proper rules and approved uh, you can go fucking toss a grenade in a building and kill fifteen people and you're hey getting a commendation (laughs) like damn that is such a it's just so staggering it's so it's so outside of any of the rest of our reality like no nobody can truly understand unless you fucking have been in it i'm sure of course of course and that's what's so uh, interesting about it you know it's 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 wild to think about but that's uh that's another fascinating like the whole premise of the movie Willard is apparently killed six men and he's been hired to go kill another man, call it a seventh man. And that man has killed a few people and he has in, in less than Willard has caught, killed and Willard's going to kill him because he's done it without the, the, uh, the, the, the fucking dyed paper, you know, that right. you put your monkey language on. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's so insane to think about it. It's uh, utterly arbitrary and completely paradoxical and 100% hypocritical. Yep, it's true. (laughs) Right. And I'm not saying, I just want to make it clear, it might sound a bit preachy. I'm not saying I'm better than it. (laughs) 100% no. No. I I am a creature of uh, of many flaws and I have hypocrisies of my own that I try to work on and... I, uh, I I try my damnedest to live ethically sound. I really do, but I don't always, and and I recognize and understand that. And um, you know, it's it's fascinating to see this played out in a much larger and more dangerous scale, uh, much higher stakes in uh, in this type of war. It's wild, yeah, man. 
the best though. That's why I don't, that's why I despise, you know, that's why I despise the guys in the beginning because, because of their lack, their utter lack of real, um, their utter lack of truth. They're, they're, they're just full of shit basically to, to, to whom, to not men's words. They're, they're fucking liars. They're hypocritical liars. Right. Exactly. Oh, Carmelita in the chat said it very well. The arbitrary lines we draw so we can feel civilized. Exactly. That's kind of what I was saying at the beginning, Carmelita, when I was talking about we're surrounded by like bureaus and little statues of animals and all of these things to pretend on some level that we are, um, that we, that we are superior, I guess you could say. Uh, it's pretty wild. Pretty I mean, hell, even, to come back to the cow again, even, it's like that's that whole same dissociation from the source uh, of violence, of like when you go to the story, hell, kids have to go through this. You know, uh, It's interesting how they have to learn at some point, like, oh, that thing that you go to the store and it's just a, a nice, clean, white piece of styrofoam, cellophane wrapped with a, a red plop of meat sitting in there and you go home and you cook it up and yummy, yum, yum. It tastes so good. Yeah, that was cut off of a living thing. <laughs> that was killed for you to eat that like that's always kind of a, a a revelation for kids to have to learn and everything but at the same time it's not much different than the sanitization of of war mm, yeah that's well you know that's that's why the kids in the village probably have a more profound respect for the animal that exactly. was killed even though right. it, it was much more brutal um that's why they probably have just a much more profound respect for the animal because of because they understand the violence that occurs. They see the thing die, you know? It's not pretty. It falls awkwardly. It's not, it looks wrong. It looks incorrect, you know? That's something I always found fascinating about um, about Saving Private Ryan. There are these moments where guys get hit and they fall and they fall so awkwardly. And um, I always commended Saving Private Ryan for depicting people getting shot and dying the way they fall strangely right. you know uncomfortably awkward, if you if you yeah. yeah if you've ever seen it, it's to a much less, lesser extent if you watch a guy get knocked out in the ufc their body just turns off in whatever position they're in and it's just odd looking you know you get used to it watching it in the ufc you get used to watching a guy fall really weird but that's what's happening your brain's getting shut off i'm not talking about the gore of guts blown off and faces blown apart i'm just talking about the the antiseptic body getting turned off and right. and it just you go wow this is different you it, you view it differently it's not if they don't do it in movies very well i thought there were some not some often, real there's some real good moments in saving private ryan where he's up in the bell tower and he's hitting guys and they're just fucking as they're running they're running and falling onto their face onto the dirt it's like god right. damn man, it's fucking ruthless and um that's kind of that that moment with the bullets it's just utterly brutal but yeah, just you, the kids, the point of this side tangent I'm on is that the kids in that village in, I believe they were in Cambodia, yeah. were much more attuned to the source, to the sacrifice that that animal has made, unwillingly, of course, to these people. And um, it's it's less um, it's less antiseptic, uh, as you say. Right. And also, you know, you, you kind of reminded me too, I think it's a, another good side tangent, just to talk about it as a, as a movie and then violence in movies and war movies. Uh, to think, you know, I feel like nowadays when we look back at Vietnam war movies, we kind of lump Apocalypse Now in with the ones we've already been talking about, like Hamburger Hill and Platoon. And those are all also, I would consider a evolution of war movies from how they used to be. But this was kind of the first. I mean, 
1979, most of the, the big Vietnam movies we talk about are made in the mid-80s and late-80s even. Mm. This was 79. And when you think about the war movies prior to this, like Guns of Navarone, The Longest Day, those still had those old-fashioned bloodless deaths of a guy getting shot. Ooh, he throws his hand on his chest, other arm up in the air dramatically, and, uh, uh, and falls down on his back. Usually even has enough life and vigor in him to get some last words out to his friend. And then, ah, uh, like this this kind of poetic death every time there was sure. always a, a touch of romance clean, to it clean a clean death and like dude not to jump the gun deer, too deer hard, hunter like, was the year before it was pretty violent oh well there yeah and i would well, platoon was hunter. until 86 but but yeah but those movies are more they 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 are interested on the in the humanity and the morality of it and stuff but this movie is entirely focused on that whereas right. platoon does get into the horrors of things like battle. This kind of stays away from battle. It does. Yeah, which is interesting. Outside of this air cav bombardment, that's kind of it in terms of like big battles. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's actually another aspect of this movie I really like is how it's kind of on the fringes of the war. It's not really in the trenches of the battles and trying to advance, you know, into enemy territory. Sure. They're all kind of skirting around the edges. And by the end of it, I mean, they're literally outside of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're off in Cambodia, which, I mean, in truth, the Vietnam War did of spread course. secretly too. But uh, you know, technically, they're outside of the bounds of combat by then. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. But um, we have this uh, interesting encounter where Chef wants mangoes. We learn he's a saucier. A saucier from New Orleans. New Orleans. And they have this crazy moment in the jungle. Oh, I hate the way Marcin's holding his gun, by the way. <laughs> the actor slipped. Um, it's our second time we talked about Charles Sheen. He, we talked about him in The, the Padded. Oh, that's true. The, the, or Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Sorry, Martin Sheen. Ooh, and boy, does he mistake. does he look like Charlie and uh and Emilio, huh? He it looks really like both of them combined. It's hilarious. <laughs> that is true. He, he when he had his sons, he divided. Yeah, exactly. But um and he and in Chef has this crazy encounter with a tiger. Dude, I love it. I love this. What a perfect, poignant, weird little like encapsulation of the idea that you are intruding in a place that you do not belong. Like you are not of the jungle. You are not out here. And this tiger, just one singular tiger fucking absolutely repels back these two guys with guns. And and it doesn't just repel him. It sends him into a tilt a whirl. Oh yeah. He fucking chef loses it for a minute right here. He does. And, And he becomes, he changes a bit. I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty pretty remarkable moment in the movie. I, I I thought about it a lot. You know, I watched the movie and I was like, God, what a weird moment. The tiger and then him kind of just being so stricken by it. And then I just started to think about it. And actually, in the chat right now, James uh, Jackson's talking about how it's basically um, not a scene to madness, right? And that's right. essentially oh, what we're seeing. Yeah, that's that. It this there is there is the physical travel of the river, and then there is the metaphorical travel of the mind. That's this whole movie. Absolutely, yeah, and like, and the pressure points of it breaking, right? And the tiger is a pressure point. I, I think, I think we see the stress really get to Chef here, who's right. been. And I think, I think also because it's so outside of the scope of of war, too. Like, I mean, nobody can be truly prepared for. It, but at the end of the day, if you're a soldier being trained and heading off to war and getting deployed, you are, what you're expecting is yes, there will be people out here trying to kill me. I need to try and fight back, kill these people, not let them kill me. You don't think about a fucking tiger charging out of the jungle, some ancient beast that's going to eat you alive. 
Yeah, exactly. And he, he's really affected. He's like, I didn't come here for this shit. A fucking tiger. He's freaking the fuck out. Absolutely. And, and that's another, when the rest of it surfaces. All I wanted to do was cook. All I want to do is learn how to fucking cook, man. Right. And that's another thing to note, too, that at this point in the war, I think uh, I think where it's set is 69, you know, very late in the war. These guys are probably all drafted. I don't think there's probably one among them who volunteered. I, I believe we know for fact Chef is, right? No, who was drafted, yeah. I can't remember if it said that, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. The likelihood of them all being drafted is pretty high. Yeah. Um, and this is also a moment, dude. Uh, it's actually 56 minutes in where, you know, when Chef is freaking out. And who's standing right next to him, kind of putting his arm around him, trying to console him a little bit, is Lance. Yes. And he's just smiling. He's just smiling. Saying, you'll be okay, man. You'll be okay. Yeah, it'll be all right. It's all fine. And also, we didn't even talk about it. We went by when, when Kilgore first met uh, Lance. You know, Lance just went right along with it. Yeah, yeah, I surf. And he started walking off with Kilgore as Kilgore's talking to him. And of course, there's something to be said about like, this is a much higher ranking officer, Absolutely, probably the commander dude. of this unit, unit, and he wants to talk to you, you go talk to him. That's true. Uh, but I, I find it interesting how Lance, as a character, uh, always feels a little disconnected from everybody. Like he's kind of just bobbing around in his own little reality within this. And he's, he feels like an observer more than a, a participant a lot of the times. And he just drifts among them. And he seems so disconnected right here. I mean, like, you know, Chef is having this horrible moment of a fucking almost mental breakdown. He even said, I'm fucking bucking out. And he's taking his shirt off. And Lance is just kind of, huh, just kind of sees the humor in it more than anything else. Hmm. <sighs> Find him strange, man. He weirds me out. <laughs> Especially yeah, by the end. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to see it. I'm, I'm trying to be open-minded to it. I, I, he, didn't, he didn't stand out more than anyone else to me. Not even by the end? I mean, I, I, I believe a little bit. Um, <laughs> I believe he starts to sort of, he, because he survives, he, he sort of achieves this state of madness, so to speak. He falls in it's it's this odd, odd transformation into quote the native right. Mm. I like that you use the word transformation. Uh, yeah, I'm still going to hold off on my thoughts there. I, I I think there's actually a lot to be said about Lance, surprisingly, especially by the end. Yeah, that's because that's what you're talking. About. You're you're saying you feel like he is just a passive person apart from the group. You feel like he's not part of the group. You're saying of these guys, in a way, no. Uh, and like I said, I mean. I'm still working through. Is my, it because my he's not black? Definitely because he's not black. Um, you know, he's just not. He's just not, not of peace. Not of a piece of these men. No, but like it's. And I basically all the only reason I've been resisting getting further into it is I kind of want to just save that discussion for when we're in that moment of the movie once they're actually at uh, Kurtz's place. But I feel like his the way he behaves is very different from everyone else. Got it. Okay. So let's move over to uh, our main man, Willard. He's talking about never get off the boat. Absolutely Mm -hmm. goddamn right. Unless you are going all the way. That is it. Mm, That's a great line. Kurtz got off the boat. He split from the whole fucking program. How did that happen? What did he see here that first tour? 38 fucking years old. If he joined the Green Braves, there would be no way he'd get above Colonel. The more I read about and understand, the more I admired him. His family and friends couldn't understand or talk him out of it. He had to apply three times and put up with a ton of shit. When he threatened to quit, they gave it to him. The next youngest guy in his class was half his age. 
They must have thought he was some far-out old man. I did it at 19, and it almost wasted me. What a tough motherfucker. <laughs> I always like that. I probably even mentioned it before on the podcast, but uh, one of my buddies uh, was in you know Army boot camp, and I think he was 23 at the time, and his <laughs> nickname in boot camp was Grandpa. <laughs> Jesus, man. <laughs> right? Fucking Jesus. So, God, being 38, joining the Special Forces, fuck. Yep. They, uh, we learn about Operation Archangel, about how he didn't have clearance to do what he did. They were going to nail his ass, but when um, when the press caught wind of it, they were forced to promote him because it was so successful. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Again, right. the absurdity of it all. The bullshit piled up so fast in Vietnam, you needed wings to stay above it. And I'll tell you what, that line is just occurring to me right now. The bullshit piled up so fast in Vietnam, you needed wings to stay above it. Gee, does that not just encapsulate Kilgore to a fucking metaphorical T? Oh my God, he's got wings, baby. He does. He's got and wings he flies above it all. way above it and he bombs the shit up from up above. Yep. <laughs> Strumming his guitar, surfing his surfboard. I'm having Couldn't that revelation right fuck. now. Pretty wild. <laughs> but um, let's talk about the um, USO show. Oh my God, what a weird moment, dude. So surreal. I mean, this so is, could this be any more Odyssey? Like, doesn't this sort of harken back to, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah, man. Yeah. And these I, guys I, on this something... weird journey and they come upon these like temptresses, so to speak. Right. And that's something I had never thought about until this viewing either. The kind of episodic feel of this, how it's like from event to event to event. Like, these just, these just, it's like stoppages. There really are these stops on their trip, and they get off. There's the next scene. We get back on the boat, on to the next scene. Um, but yeah, dude, this is like David Lynch blue velvet surreal of just this fucking stage on the river with these massive lights out of this. This is a combat zone. <laughs> we are in war, but yet you just roll right into the prices right. Yeah, I'll tell you that uh, the girl in the purple really does it for me. Ooh, which one in the purple? Let's see. She's got that like nice long abdomen. Ooh, smash. <laughs> um, smash. I mean, they're all beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But I found her, uh, I found the Playmate of the Year underwhelming compared to her, just to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I'll take the one in purple, please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know what? I'm not going for the top dog. I'm going for that side dog that is also, way scrappier. also way, hot, way scrappier, right? And is definitely going to try harder. You know what Pushing I mean? Pushing hard for it. Exactly. Yeah. I always pick up, I always like to pick off the stragglers. I'm like a goddamn wolf, you know? <laughs> I'm not going for that top broad. Fuck that bitch. She's a pain in my ass. Just, I could just, uh, all right, I'm just exhausted thinking about her demands. <laughs> yeah, I'm she's picking the one, off your straggler, right? You pick the one that's going to fuck with socks on. Who yeah. I want the girl that dances on. around the fucking M16. And like fake humps it. That's the one. That's the one making mama <laughs> proud that Papa wants. You don't want white Pocahontas? I mean, yeah, I'll take, of course I'm going to take Pocahontas too, but <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I usually prefer the, uh, the, the darker, sultry tones, but not, not in this particular group. In this particular group, I'm going for the, uh, definitely looks like her father is an Irish drunk guy. <laughs> an Irish drunkard. Yep. Are there any other kinds? But what a what a yeah what a wacky scene. What what do you think about this, dude? It, to me, again, this is kind of the only scene that touches on it. But this entire movie, kind of, 
digs at like pulling off the layer of civilization and what is what is just underneath our our rules and our civility. Um, and this is the only scene that really, in my opinion, touches on the the sexual aspect of it. Of like these guys fucking in war. It, it's a fucking hellacious scenario that I'm sure they're all living in. Not to even mention just the environment of Vietnam and the fucking drenched hot jungle you're in all the time. Just miserable conditions. Uh, God knows how long since they've seen a woman and you get all these dudes, hundreds of these guys, these horny young fucking soldiers, probably bored, angry, and sad. And you throw a bunch of playmates at them. The fucking chimp brain comes out hard. Like they just can't fucking help themselves. I mean, and and especially too, I think it's actually Lance again, the fucking weirdo that is Lance, man. Uh, I think he's the one, you know, like chef's like, Hey baby, I'm here. Hell yeah, cutie. And Lance is like, you're fucking bitch. (laughs) Oh, that's so weird. He's so fucking weird, man. I'm telling you, Lance is fucking weird. Uh, but he's definitely weird. Like this animalistic urge to all of it. Like they're not just like, yeah, they're so hot. They're like, yeah, fucking come here. Fuck you, bitch. Like there's like this aggressive creepiness to it as well. Mm, Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, I thought about this a lot. And and on the surface, I almost feel like I want to take Willard's word for it here. And and just sort of say, is this this the type of... Is this the type of distraction that is detrimental to victory? Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, he says Charlie didn't get much on her. He had only two ways home, death and victory, right? He didn't get sexy dancing girls. Right. And also, I think that's what that also speaks to is this idea of bringing civilization with us. And I think Kurtz talks you know, a lot about that too at the end of why are we going to lose this war? What is our disadvantage? We can't remove ourselves from our comforts. We can't, we can't live in the jungle and squat in the bush like Charlie, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of hardened person that that will make you. Absolutely, yeah. And we see it in many different small ways. The USO is a much larger way to show it. We also see it with the surfboards, right? Yeah, absolutely. We see it with the surfboards. We see it with the, this overwhelming desire to acquire mangoes. And I mean, also, there's something to be said, and even historians, uh, war historians talk about this as it you know, applies to Vietnam, just – you know, what are we fighting for there? To be honest, that's still debated. Like, people are still talking about the reasons the Vietnam War and our involvement in it at least kicked off, what we were even there to accomplish. Like, that's actually pretty fucking nebulous and confusing. But for the, you know, the Vietnamese, they're fighting for their fucking home turf. Like, that is a that is a much deeper, more visceral motivation to fight with everything you've got. Sure. Yeah. And what do we have? We got to we, we got to bring in girls in bikinis to keep our boys motivated. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, I'll tell you, man. It's fucking wild. It's a wild moment in this movie. It is, man. Also, but it, there's but a it great, does have uh, that Odyssey sort of feel to it. One hundred percent. One. There's a really interesting quote by uh, Coppola. Uh, I think actually, I think it was the movie's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Where he talks about, I mean, it's it's a little pretentious sounding, but I, there's interesting quality to it. Where he says, "My movie is not a, you know, this movie is not about the Vietnam War. It is the Vietnam War." Mm-hmm. Where yeah. he's like, and I think he's pointing out just the absurdity of it is more accurate than trying to to accurately uh, depict a battle from Vietnam. The absurd quality of it is more accurate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, pretty intense. 
pretty intense moment. And um, Jackson in the chat says he he was saying that the show blended civilization with men that have been dehumanized in a lot of ways, like a contrast. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Dude, don't you love the fucking show promoter guy who first comes out? And then he is the one who is like the second one or two of the soldiers jump over the line to start trying to come up to the stage. He's like, we're done. We're out. <laughs> fucking toss the fucking smoke. Everybody out of the chopper. We're fucking out of here. These savages are going to fucking start tearing their clothes off. To expound on what James says in the chat, you could almost say it. It per- perhaps it is that way, but perhaps it descends into what is just prevalent of the place, which is this this primal madness. You know, right, right. But but think- maybe you know you know. But damn, now that I'm starting to think deeply about it, it's it's funny because it is you know those girls coming out on the stage and and them dancing and these guys in the crowd and the in the show and the lights and all the fun like. I mean, we're basically saying like, this is, this is my fuck dance, you know? And in other <laughs> right. words, in other words, it's almost like we're saying, like with the whole movie, we're saying one thing, but showing you something else. Like, oh, here's right. your, here's some, here's a morality boost for the boys. But it's just us watching girls that we desperately would just want to fuck. Exactly. Like even just uh, <laughs> as far as a cultural level goes. Like, and that's as you primal know, as it gets, right? Exactly. Fucking is primal. And you know that, like, you know, these dudes would probably even think, like, ah, they, these savages and the way they fucking would have their, you know, their women or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, this is still just like primal fucking mating dance shit. It <laughs> is. I mean, we are like, very simple. Really Men, by the way, are very simple. Yeah. I, I couldn't <laughs> tell you how women operate because I don't have, um, I don't have a woman's brain. So, um, but I will say it's, it's quite easy for us to go, yes, I would fuck that girl that's 50 feet away from here, I'm pretty sure I would. That's a, <laughs> that's a strong yes. 50 <laughs> feet away. It's true. I would go, yes, I would fuck that person. Do you need to know their name? No, I don't. <laughs> it's a genetic <laughs> predisposition, and that's all it is. Yeah. And, um, and it's hilarious. Like That's what the, these guys are just going fucking bananas. But as you would imagine, they would. Rules of <laughs> engagement versus chaos, Carmelita says. That's an interesting take. Pretty cool. Pretty cool, lady. <laughs> so you well, know, and I, one quick thing too uh in the redux version of this i do I, I remember i'm pretty sure it's lance actually does fuck one of the playboy playmates oh does he uh, yeah and then one of their and like a parked helicopter huh weird lance is weird i mean good for him but weird yeah so um where do you want to go from here we want to go uh up river where they got the the boats sort of passing by each other oh god yeah this is such another just bizarre like again we are in the middle of war this is a fucking war and here's you know an allied boat another one of your boats riding by ah fucking throws a smoke grenade onto the top of your boat and fucking accidentally catches the canopy on fire yep. after another boat passed by with a dude mooning you yep it, it's anything it's anything to feel a sense of normalcy like ball breaking right totally it's, yeah you know but um the war was being run by a bunch of four-star clowns that were going to give the whole circus away Willard muses. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Um, Willard reads more. Kurtz orders the assassination to some Vietnamese army, high ranking. Enemy activity in his old sector drops off to nothing. Guess he hit the right people. There you go. Mm-hmm. It was actually even a, an effective mission. Yeah. The army tried to get him back to the fold, but he refused. They called me in. They lost him. He was gone. Nothing but rumors and random intelligence. The VC knew his name. They were scared of him. He and his men played hit and run all the way into Cambodia. Damn. Damn. That is intense, dude. 
that, that, I mean, that is another just like, in the same way that you, you know, I know the idea of an adrift abandoned space vessel with blinking lights oh, in the midst it. of space. That's just, that's horny for Dean. Something for me, the idea of a whole like squadron or battalion of fucking soldiers just going rogue and are like, we don't know what they're doing, but we know they're still, they are basically committing war by themselves out there and we have no reign over them. That is, as a concept, I'm like, ooh, I am so interested. Absolutely. Give it to me. Nice. You'd like the brothers without banners. Ooh. The brother. Brothers without banners. My brothers. My brother. Is that that Game of Thrones? The brothers without banners? Yeah, Yeah, man. I'm not telling you. I ain't telling you shit. So behind. So behind. I mean, I've had so much spoiled for me, but so behind. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um... Yeah, man. And this is where essentially Willard has to tell Chief, listen, we're fucking going to Cambodia. Yeah, man. That's a good moment. You're taking me. <laughs> you are taking me up there. Because before that, I feel like all he said to them is like, my mission's classified. Like, just take me. Just drive the boat. And we get to this moment where they read Kurtz's letter home. Oh, yeah, to his son. Dude. In a war, there are many moments for compassion and tender action. There are moments for ruthless action. What is often called ruthless, but may in many circumstances only be clarity. Seeing clearly that there is to be done in doing it, directly, quickly, and awake. Look at it. I am beyond their timid, lying morality, and I am so beyond caring. Your loving father. Damn, their Mm. timid, lying morality. Indeed. And I mean, again, hey, he's not wrong. (laughs) He's not (laughs) fucking wrong. Um, but I also love the way he says he, when he talks about the the four Vietnamese double agents he had to kill. He says the alleged victims, <laughs> like they were yeah, definitely yes. killed, but yes. they ain't victims. Yep. they were guilty. <laughs> Hell yeah, doggy doesn't back off of it for an inch. Uh, more traveling up river. Some of these sites. I mean, ah, it's just so wild, dude. Yeah, it's I mean, especially the 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 scenes with like the mist and the smoke that oh. they, they ride through the god damn like that is just cinematic as shit yep telling the tale so tell, telling the tale of unknown paths right being covered in darkness are we are we doing the light or the dark thing here are we are we following the light side of the force or the dark side of the force the uh the camera wants to deliberately obscure that fact from you by by making you feel that way oh yeah and just also just the way they pass by some of these just arbitrary scenes of violence, like, you know, boats crashed, bodies just in trees from wreckage of a helicopter burning in a tree, you know, just these like scattered chunks of war that you don't even know why. You don't know what caused this. It's just there. More mm-hmm. death. And this is where we start seeing there's, there's a lot of great moments, these, these metaphorical mask moments, right? We see, your, we see your boy Lance putting on a mask. Lance is fucking weird. <laughs> fucking Lance. <laughs> yeah, no, this and, is. And um, this is where they do the junk boat stop. Dude, one of the darker scenes in the movie. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. They, they stop to search it because, of course, they're, they're suspicious of any other boats out here. It could be a VC boat in hiding. It could get close and attack them. So Chief wants to go check it out. We're actually captain captain willard is the one being like let no let's just keep going just ignore this but chief wants to press on to it yep and it causes uh, a pretty bad moment we have uh chef uh, excuse me we have clean clean kind of losing his shit here yeah 
he's on the 60 cal and uh they tell 60 cal? 60 what am i fucking saying the m60 jesus um he's on the 60 and they what ends up happening is that they they tell all these guys to fucking move out move to the front of the boat chef goes on board to start looking through things and he hates it he doesn't even want to be on here he's like, ah, it's just fucking mangoes yeah it's a bag of rice i searched it why are we fucking searching this uh but as and he soon not, not as just the, hates it but i mean he is literally insubordinate and raging out. Again, he has started to lose his cool since his jungle encounter looking for mangoes. Definitely, yeah. You know, he's a changed man since looking for the thing that ties him home and encountering an apex predator. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. That he was blocked from, you know, one of his home comforts by just a monster. Yeah, exactly. And but, um, yeah, go ahead. Once, once the woman turns back, you know, desperate, you know, afraid of what he's going to uncover in the box, fucking clean just opens up, kills literally everyone on the boat. Yep. Except yep. for Chef. And what is she going back for? A fucking puppy. Crazy. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> that is some dark shit. Yep. And Lance takes the puppy. <laughs> just so fucking casually too just like oh so there was a puppy in there i guess that's my puppy now all right cool moving on i'm laying well, some fucking he, soulless no no he takes it from chef and i think him taking the puppy is sort of not good for your case you're building against him <laughs> no i'm not even saying that he's no i know a, a i know you're not. i'm just busting your balls oh yeah uh but yeah dude like he just you know he what does he focus on in the scene just, oh it was a puppy. Cool. It's mine. Great. Like it, he, there's no, no protesting from Lance, no emotion. I mean, he's just this kind of blank canvas of a person, man. I find him so fucking strange. Yeah. I don't know. Blank canvas. You keep using that word and I just can't get there. I just think he's coping with the madness a little bit different than anybody else. Willard's I'm, totally turned off to it because he's Willard. That's how he operates. And then you have, and then you have, um, chef who's who's bawling raging one minute bawling the next we know that he is his psyche has been broken a little bit and then you have lance who's directs his energy towards as as, as he's surrounded by death to, to perhaps protecting this thing that's kind of how i took it whereas okay. the chief doesn't really have the <laughs> the chief doesn't have the luxury he's running the fucking boat he's trying to be a professional he's probably the most professional guy there right. and um, right. oh, for sure yeah and then you sort of just have this moment with um with clean who doesn't doesn't say much you know he just no. kind of did yeah, his thing and willard just says i told you not to fucking stop and you stop and he wastes the wounded girl too just shoots her in the head so hardcore so brutal told you not to stop let's go i mean this is the guy going after kurtz but could any other man be up to the task right i mean it takes that kind of person it takes that kind of ruthlessness Ugh, fucking without a doubt and uh, i love the way there's so many moments of sheen just sitting on the boat in his short shirt off just letting the sun hit his back and contemplating quietly you know he he does this role so well yeah, no, Martin Sheen's fantastic in this movie. But, and the, I, you know, this is very, a very... Oh, I'm sorry, this is a pivotal moment in the film because we fade to black. Yes. For a strong um, second. And I think this is a big... I think this is a big indicator of change for all of these characters. Yeah. And also the, the dialogue that opens up in the next scene of the, the silhouetted boat driving by, you know, as the sun's setting behind it. We'd cut them in half with machine guns and then give them a Band-Aid. It was all lies. Yep. The That's more what he's I, focused on. Yeah, the more I saw it, the more I hated lies. And and he is, and, and it's hilarious because he was just participating in that very thing. Oh, absolutely. He was you the know, coldest he, motherfucker of the bunch. He wastes her because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, what am I trying to say? He doesn't want to commit to the lie. 
Mm. Expand on that. What do you mean? Sure. So what I'm saying is by him blowing her away, he doesn't commit to the lie of them shooting her up and then fixing her up. Right, right. Like own the violence you've committed. Correct. Which makes him very much like Kurtz, which I think is kind of the point. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I think as as far as the movie goes further, I I think we see, like I was saying at the top, the parallels drawing tighter and tighter. And I think that um, Captain Willard genuinely sees Kurtz as this could be me. This could be my future. Like I might be headed down this path. That's part of what I think terrifies him about it. I also think this is a cool way to Trojan horse Kurtz's story a little bit. And that is, and I know we've, we've used this example before when studying two characters, but, um, but, but we're seeing, we're seeing Willard and what he's experiencing in this, you know, uh, metaphorical and physical journey up the river and through the path of darkness. Um, we're seeing the journey that leads him to kill Kurtz, which is probably the exact same journey, not details, but the exact same type of journey that Kurtz himself had to go on. Right. I agree. Like it's almost a, a metaphor for Kurtz's backstory. Like that's it's, right. it's our, it's our way of getting to see it through Willard. Yep. And also, I mean, just the fact that, you know, that's something we haven't touched on either, that this movie has a lot of narration by tons. Uh, Captain Willard. Tons of, I, and, I wrote them all down. <laughs> and I'm somebody who I think it, it should definitely still always be used sparingly and, and intelligently, but I am a big fan of the narration in this movie. And I, I am not one of those people. There are a lot of like even film critics and shit who just chide at any narration of like ah show don't tell why do we have narration i'm like dude that that can add a deeper level if done right and i think this movie absolutely does it right because most of his narration i mean it's his thoughts but a lot of it is his thoughts on kurtz and reading the dossier on kurtz um and and i think that draws us in to realizing the similarities between them yep absolutely um, we have this brief stopover in this village after they go by some GIs straight in the water after a helicopter crash or something. <clears throat> they want rides back to the base and they just kind of go by them. The base isn't far away. Though. Oh, and, and, and to your point, um, Lance acts quite weird here as they approach this village because he's like, wow, look at that. That's beautiful. And then he admits to Chef that he dropped acid. Dude. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> like, huh? What? I can't think of a more terrifying proposition. Dude, a lot of GIs did fucking drugs, man, over there. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. But god damn. The idea of going into, not like if they were just on the river trucking along and you took acid, it's like, okay, it's still kind of risky. You're going to be a little less on guard and prepared for <laughs> combat. But rolling into a fucking hot combat zone, like, wow, I'm tripping balls. I'm like, you're going to die, dude. Holy shit. Oh, my god. I can't. I, ugh, it's the most horrifying thing ever. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, but dude, also this this scene, I'm I'm a massive fan. This might be uh, this is a, this is fighting for one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Uh, this whole incursion, the it is utterly surreal. You know, they're approaching this bridge. It's a bridge at night, just mid attack. It is just being pounded, uh, and the entire scene. You know, just to kind of give it an overall take, the, once they actually land the boat and try to see what's going on and find a commanding officer. There is no commanding officer. Yep. And this bridge gets blown up every fucking day, and they rebuild it every fucking day. Like, that is the the total summation of just a meaningless 
slog. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're, we have no direction out here. There's nobody in charge of us. We're just killing each other and building a bridge that gets blown. I mean, like, it's like fucking Sisyphus putting, pushing the boulder up a mountain. <laughs> just this endless fucking, we're just doing this. We don't even know why we're doing this at this All point. All right, we're I'm going to st- stop right here. You said Sisyphus. Okay. You also said earlier, what were you saying? Something about Dionysus. Oh, yeah. Come Dionysus. On. Say it again. Apollo. All what? right. Yeah, you yeah. did that earlier. All right. Any, yeah. any other brain burners? Oh, my brain burners. Well, there's lots of Greek shit going on in here. It's the Odyssey, baby. There you go. Would you read the Odyssey after, old brother? Because you don't have any of these references for that. <laughs> that, to be honest, that movie I feel like is an even looser adaptation of the Odyssey than this. Yeah, fair enough. This, get, this gets more Greek, more operatic. It certainly does. Uh, yeah, great scene, though. Great visuals here, like you're pointing out. It looks incredible. Um, so good. It's, it's wild, man. And I mean, everybody here too, like, is just defecting. Like when they roll up in the boat, all these soldiers are diving in the water, like, take us home, take us home, get us out of here. Like they, dude, who knows how much even like radio contact these guys have with any base. Like they're just out here. They're just fucking an island uh, in the war doing whatever. Like that is also just a, such a surreal and, and interesting concept. But then the, even the, the, the courier who comes up and gives them the message, like, hey, is Captain Willard on that boat? Oh, here you go. You have you know another order I have to give you, and here's some mail for the boat. So happy to see you because now that means I can get out of here. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, I just was here to bring this message. I'm out. I'm fucking getting out of this hellhole if I can find a way. You're in the asshole of, asshole of the world, Captain. Yeah. What do you think of the use of strobing light? It's uh, to me, it gives it that otherworldly quality too. Like they're on the, because this is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to think of the flow of the movie. After this, they're on the river for pretty much the rest of the movie until they get to Kurtz's camp. This is kind of the last actual stop before Kurtz's camp, and I feel like it really marks the end of even the scant order of war that we've gotten to see like war making sense which it's all throughout this entire movie it's kind of not made sense but this scene especially and then everything beyond here is just we are fully off the edge of the world yeah it definitely feels like they are in another world and i think they do that very much on purpose like this is the last stop before fucking real purgatory yep absolutely and um, it's crazy. The, the use of the strobing light, we see uh, this, I, I think it's an important metaphor, the use of strobing light, especially when it relates to Willard's face. I mean, he's quite going from visible in the light to completely and utterly in the darkness. And I think this is, uh, this is a lot of just the, of, of his own internal oscillation between light and dark, you know? It's pretty cool. Totally. It's a pretty cool way to show it too. Oh yeah. Man. As they're walking too, when they're walking over, uh, it's that tracking shot following them and they're going under the wires, the lit wires yeah. from the bridge and the bridge gets bombed and hit for a second. And the wires have that, like that shaking sound that goes all the way down through them. It's just so fucking surreal. Yep. It really does feel like another world entirely. Yep. That weird moment of the, the contemptuous, rebellious nature of the Viet Cong and he was going to kill them. He's out there by himself, wounded probably, oh, and they yeah, just definitely. waste him with a grenade launcher. And the calmness of the dude who does it, where he mm-hmm. just walks out and he's like, nah, man, he's close. He's real close. Gets that thumper, boom, gone, and he's just like, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, man. Like, they, they, they are so just numb to this. Thousand-yard stare? Exactly. Yeah. 
And uh, we know a lot of these tops, they they resupply, they get ammo and things of this nature. And right. um, They're looking yeah. for fuel, too. That's another thing. Yeah, for yep. here. And uh, Willard kind of barks, just get up river. That's it. He's like, get me the fuck out of here. There is no there is no commanding officer. Let's just get me up river. Yep. And uh, they head out. Explosions behind them. To me, yeah, like, exactly. And, and as they're leaving, he's saying, you know, that's just a, this damn bridge gets blown up and rebuilt again just so that the generals can say that the road is open. Like, that that disconnect, man. That It's that disconnect between the brass and then the reality on the ground that makes it so surreal. That, like, there's somebody sitting at a desk somewhere signing the paper, approving that, yes, this road is open and this many supplies are going over them and that's been maintained. It's a, it's a success. It's another small victory for us. But in truth, on the ground, it's just fucking anarchy with no commanding officer and the bridge is barely holding even as, as it's getting attacked constantly. It just looks good on paper. And the reality of the hundreds of lives being killed out there. Right. God, it's, it's, oh, it's so dark. Disconnect, baby. We see um, this next uh, moment in this movie where we get this pretty wacky, discordant type of uh, electric music, and they're looking over mail, and um, Willard gets a mission update about how this Richard Colby went in to get Kurtz, and now he's with him. They read about Charles Manson, um, and then they start getting attacked from the shoreline. In a, in a pretty important, in a pretty pretty big scene here, we start losing guys. Yeah, pretty fucking intense attack, too. They just start, the whole ridge just opens up on them. Yep, yep. I think they're supposed to, they're supposed to be simulating tracer rounds. It looks like they were just popping flares at the boat. <laughs> right, yeah. That's, that's why the movies have always struggled to capture tracer fire. Because it's like, it would be much more like a <laughs> laser with, you know, three or four bullets behind each one of those. Sure. Modern movies handle it pretty well. That's true. But, um, yeah, they're attacked, and Clean is killed in the fucking eerie shit of his mom's voice. God. Oh, God, that's so eerie. It's, and it's just so brutal. God. And his, he's laying there dead as his mom on the tape is talking about future plans for him. Right. Oh, we're saving up to buy you a car. We miss you real good. Get your behind home in one piece as he's just laying there dead. Yep. Jesus, man. Yep. Killed so on a dark. boat in a weird-ass fucking place, man. <laughs> Wild. Yep. Crazy moment. And then the, the utter breaking down of Chief, right? You were so young. It's a tough moment. It's a real mood killer. Oh, yeah. It's awful. And I'll, hey, also, by the way, to add a little more to my uh, to my case against Lance, hey, this is better than Disney World, man. It's better than Disneyland. It's fucking great. <laughs> what? <laughs> Lance, you fucking freak me out. <laughs> I don't I don't want to be serving with Lance, that's for sure. Also, dude, another thing in this scene. I mean, Clean is gunned down. He's fucking dead, bleeding to, you know, bleeding out on the, the deck of the ship. And you know, Lance, I mean, I in a way, yeah, we all we all cope and suffer in our own way. But he's just like, the dog, where's the dog? We gotta go back for the dog. Come on, guys. The dog as Lance is I mean, as Clean is just laying there. Like, ah, Again, the disconnect. There you go. All right. Um, yeah. They, uh, it's a crazy scene, crazy moment. Uh, Chief breaks down, and um, we have this great shot of the boat with the green like smoke. Yeah, man. And, and that's also this when is... we get this fog descend upon them. That That is a, a very cool a visual representation of a shift, having sustained oh, yeah. a couple of uh, casualties. Oh, no, one casualty. Chief isn't dead yet. Right, right. Uh, dude, that shot of them in the blue as they go under the plane that's just laying there, very cool, tilting huh? against a river. God, it's so good. 
Yeah, looks yeah, they amazing. Just keep keep getting deeper into the darkness, into you know water and and terrain they just can't even see through. Yeah, it's wild. And uh, what's Chief want to do? He wants to stop again. Why? Because I can't see a damn thing. Willard won't have it. That's it, man. I don't blame Chief here, man. I'd be fucking nervous about pushing forward in this. Sure. And um, they uh, they're kind of chit chatting, and um, there's dead bodies on the shore. They emerge from the fog, and um, they start getting arrows rained down upon them which are just actual toy arrows. Right? Yeah, it's so weird. These, like, small fucking arrows that, you know, Lance catches one, you know, picks one up at least, and snaps it in half and puts it on either side of his head. Like yep. he got fucking shot through the head, fucking silly cartoon style. Yeah. Who, is, does he notice they were toys, or was it Willard? I think Willard's the one who's like, they're, they're just trying to scare us. They, like, don't fire at them. Right, which is exactly what they do. Chef starts opening up. He's, again, raging out. Oh, yeah, taking it out on them. But, dude, yep. this next moment, Chief just gets a fucking spear through his chest. Yikes. Through the God back. Damn. And he even just says, I honestly feel like it's just him being stunned by by the idea of what just happened to him. Of course. Of course. A spear. Like, of course. I'm, I'm in, the, in the year 1969 on this fucking powerful modern military boat surrounded by machine guns. I got killed by a spear. It's like, not the fuck. Like that's got to be the last thought. Yeah, just like God damn it, a spear. But dude, then he tries to fucking pull Captain Willard's face through that spear. Yeah, kind of a wild moment. That is an intense moment, dude. It's it's made all the more intense too by the fact that they are not screaming or or or, or like swearing at each other. It's just this quiet life or death struggle. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A weird moment for sure. I'm sure Willard doesn't take it too personally. Not really. Yeah, because, I mean, he blames Willard for getting them this deep into this yeah. place. Well, that's his mission. It's his mission. My mission is to make it up into Cambodia. There is a Green Beret colonel up there who has gone insane. I'm supposed to kill him. This is Willard talking to a Chef, who doesn't yeah. take it well at all. <laughs> As he does most things. Ah, fuck, man. Come on, man. Yep. And Lance, man. still with the arrow through his head, uh takes the body of Chief and just lets him drift into the water and sink. Yep. He do, it looks like he's cleaning him or something weird. It's almost like a, a kind of a weird religious thing. I don't know. It, it reminded me of like a weird baptism, like the way he kind of just puts him down in the water. Absolutely. That's, oh, it's so weird, man. <clears throat> well, Chef, well, Chef freaks out on the boat. And then off they head deeper into the night, a house just standing there burning yeah. Even, I, I think they even see actual crucifixes along with the altar of just skulls and severed heads. Man, this like, is nuts. It starts to get real dark. They've entered Kurtz's world. Yeah, absolutely. They are in Ugh. the belly of the fucking beast here, man. So deep. I like how Willard says, the thing I felt most, much stronger than fear, was the desire to confront him. Right, right. Just yep. to stare him down. Pretty wild. And um, that's when we meet our photojournalist. <laughs> <laughs> Old Dennis but, but what himself. a great but before I don't want to jump the gun but as the boat is riding up and Dude, yeah. I guess they're supposed to be Cambodians right they're in Cambodia the way they just all silently sit that is terrifying absolutely yeah it's utterly terrifying because I mean for one it, it doesn't betray their intention at all you have no right. idea what they want from you what they plan to do and that's unnatural standing. it's unnatural like i don't think they would do this without kurtz having infused them with that with whatever he has 
Right. Like the utter discipline to sit still there and even sort of just push aside as the boat goes through is really oddly unsettling. Yeah. Like they're just, what's interesting about it too is that they are, especially at this point in the movie, they are very much, this whole section is kind of the the ultimate representation of chaos in this movie and just like wild and, you know, unbridled savagery. But at the same time, they act so cohesively in this moment and in some later moments too. Like they they act as almost like a single unit and they move quietly and in an orderly way. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I found them to be, I find chaotic moments take place here, but I, I don't feel like chaos defines these people because they're so, it's like they've they've succumbed to the cult of personality that is Kurtz. Totally. It's wild, yeah. man. It's so weird. And dude, this is some of my favorite music of the movie too. Just that pulsing kind of drum beat that's yeah. very faint. Yeah. Yep. Real bassy. Ah, it's good. Zap them with your siren. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Dennis Hopper in this movie, man. <laughs> All the cocaine. <laughs> all of it. Every all last bit of it. He's done More. it all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jesus. The siren sends at least a lot of the people kind of scattering off and away. Yep, yep. <laughs> Journalist warns him of mines. He introduces himself. He's very frenetic. There are dead people in trees, naked. Dude, just Weird. naked corpses hanging. I mean, death is literally a decoration here. Correct. There are so many fucking corpses and pieces of human beings just laying around strewn up in trees tied to things they like they are just utterly numbed by and surrounded by death yeah yeah yep i think the most affected is chef i think lance is already sort of vacant as you've described and will are just like grizzled to it and our photojournalist pal here just ignores it. He's he's too wrapped up in 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 what is Kurtz, right? Totally, yeah. A poet warrior in a classic sense, he says. <laughs> they think you've come to take him away. That's why they're scared. <laughs> Can we talk to him? You don't talk to Kurtz. You listen, and uh, he babbles about his greatness. Right? Kurtz continually calls him a great man. I'm sorry, the, the photojournalist. The journalist calls him a great man. I wish I had words. The other day he wanted to kill me because I took his picture. He said, if you take my picture again, I'll kill you. And he meant it. And it was cool. <laughs> it was cool because of the, well, he knew exactly where he stood. You know, it's like there's something admirable about that, I think, is what Hopper is getting at here. Right. And just, yeah, again, the, the honesty of Kurtz. Yep. Nobody says anything. And uh, Wick Willard recognizes, I think, Colby from the dossier update. Yeah. And he doesn't say a fucking word. Nope. Not a word. He just says Colby to him, and he just stares at him. Yeah, exactly. Everything I saw told me that Kurtz had gone insane. The place was full of bodies. If I was alive, it was because he wanted me that way. That's the (laughs) first thing we realize um, about Kurtz through Willard's perception of him, which we would be dead. I mean, these guys would have overwhelmed us. Not just the guys with the spears and the bows, but he has a small army with GI equipment. You know, you see guys yeah. with M16s everywhere. And actual, you know, GIs among them, too. His original yeah, yes. men who have stuck with him. That's right, yep. So, yeah, they have a pretty uh, prodigious fighting force here, really. And suddenly the crowd just sort of grabs him and takes him away. They crowd surf his ass to, to, to nowhere. We're not sure where. Yeah, not yet. But, um, yeah, I like this. Um cool moment oh no they don't do that yet he goes to the boat first right doesn't he and he says um oh, that's right this is when he's telling uh i think Sh- i think chef right about the you know the we can call in an airstrike if need be yeah if i'm not back by 2200 hours 
you know, calling this airstrike, calling in Almighty. Yeah, and then they grab him. It starts raining, and that's when they grab him. Yeah, that's right. But the the meeting, I mean, the meeting, the meeting with uh, Kurtz, that initial meeting is incredible. Uh, the cinematographer here, the lighting, all of this is just perfect. Oh yeah, man. He is. And what's so funny about this too? It's it's like a perfect example of real life difficulties and constraints on the set almost improving the movie because i think you know if you hadn't heard about it it's a pretty notorious hollywood production story but brando showed up on set like 80 pounds overweight weight and he was already becoming kind of a fucking fruit loop at this point he was getting real weird and kind of off his rocker himself knew none of his lines at all like had to have a little earpiece in his ear kind of like he did on the fucking dr moreau movie too feeding him his lines and he was always just spaced out and fucking weird but honestly, I think that serves the role pretty fucking well. And they had to shoot him in the shadows because of how much larger he was than the character was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a a kind of like wiry, thinned man by you know the elements and being out here. Marlon Brando was not that man. So they film him in the dark, but it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes the movie work. It, sh- it should be. Right. I think it's fantastic, man. It like, should be shot like this in the in, in with that with that the darkness has been a motif the whole film yeah and i mean and most of the time he's like his head is just an orbiting you know little ball in the darkness you know his body it's almost like his body doesn't even matter Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it makes you feel makes you feel alone the darkness it makes you feel apart it makes you feel like you aren't where you are i think darkness is the great equalizer to anything safe right yeah and yeah, that's what exactly. you feel because because in your own home you can suddenly feel like you're not in your own home if you are a little bit scared and suddenly the lights go off. You're not really concentrating on your home anymore, you're concentrating on the darkness. You know, it's this it's this great powerful primeval force that suddenly separates you from civilization, I guess you could say, from Safety. home, from yeah. home, right? Totally. And that's but what also, we see here. It's wild. I I find it super interesting that Kurtz's first question to Willard is, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And Just having a conversation with him. Yeah. But he's like, Ohio, sir. And, and he starts talking about how he once went up the, the Ohio River and you know, was on a boat with his father. Like, again, the first thing they do is pointing, almost drawing out the similarities between them, the experiences they might have even shared. Yeah. Brando's a good actor, man. He, he is. He, he, he is. really like, he's really good. He's really good here. Um, he has a casual way about his about the discussion. I was listening to a podcast once. Talk, we've talked about this too, but hey, what do you know? We repeat ourselves. But um, <laughs> when they're like, you know, uh, you, you pretend you're a chicken. All right, cool. No, now pretend you're a chicken, and there's a nuclear bomb coming. Right, and the and the story goes, Brando just continued to be like a regular chicken while everyone else freaked out and ran away. And he's like, a chicken doesn't know what a fucking nuclear bomb is. <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome he's right? a fucking genius i mean at the end of the day he's a brilliant fucking actor <laughs> no, he yeah is. it's like he puts himself in, you know he, he he that's a perfect example of i if you're pretending to be a chicken you're going i'm a guy pretending to be a chicken if you're brando you're going i'm a fucking chicken i'm a chicken i right? actually want to eat as dumb as it, as dumb as it sounds it it's, makes total sense but just the yeah. casual nature like the way he says uh, must have been a gardenia plantation or a flower plantation at one time it's all wild and overgrown He's talking about this place in the river. I can't remember. You know, those those little realistic moments in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Of a, Like a man who is, 
at this point, so disconnected, but also very aware of his disconnection, I think, or he's just kind of adrift. Yeah, you'd say he's disconnected from civilization as we know it, but yeah. he has one where he is, as odd as it seems. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I feel like he's disconnected from our reality. So when, when he's trying to talk about it and connect with Willard, he's, it's almost like, ah, I can barely even remember. Echoes, right? Echoes of a past life. Right. And he, he talks about it like a, it was like a thousand centuries ago. Yeah. What, and by the way, what a decision. That's such an absurd number. You exactly. could have said a thousand years ago, and that's plenty. But a thousand centuries makes it feel like it's another time. Right. A whole other era of human A whole, whole other. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, he says, um, he asks some good questions here. Have you ever considered any real freedoms? Freedoms from the opinions of others, even the opinions of yourself. I mean, that strikes deep, man. Mm. That's a, that is a massive question. Freedom yeah, from the opinion of others is one of the most liberating endeavors that you can participate in, um, in a sense, to... to to live life according to your standards and not according to the standards of somebody else. This is very Nietzschean, right? Yeah. One of the things Nietzsche always would talk about would be this, this, the courage to be the lion, I believe is what he said, right? The courage to be the lion instead of, instead of always just capitulating to do what you're always supposed to do and, and pretending that there's some virtue in it when the reality is, is that's just normalcy. Like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get married at this age. I'm going to have a kid at this age. I'm going to, like, that's all, that's just standard fare. And, and he would talk about the courage and the challenge of stepping outside of that thing, right? And for some, that's perfectly acceptable and perfectly fine. And it makes utter sense to be those things. But he always would talk about this idea of the courage to be the lion, not, not the literal, you know, slayer of things, but... But but to the lion does not concern himself with the opinion of sheep, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of an interesting thought process, and I found it fascinating that Kurtz was just saying, "Have you ever considered real freedom? Freedom from the opinions of others." And then when he said, "Even the opinion of yourself," he kind of dropped a bomb on me, and I thought about that for a good thirty minutes. Yeah, man, that's that's a very interesting question because I mean, to to have an opinion of yourself even is already a measuring stick that is decided by society essentially that you you're you can't look at yourself and make some opinions about yourself unless you're you're ranking them against what else you see it could be it could also be a, an opinion of of an opinion of yourself as you interact could also be sort of a, a symbol of a type of ethical framework or morality right right yeah that which too. is which is pretty wild and that's and I think that's something that's I think that's something that's fascinating is that it is what it is. I don't spend too much time thinking about it. And I'm certainly not gonna judge myself for it. Right. Right. That's right. that's like war to a T. Yeah. Of almost like don't think, just be. Yeah. And I don't mean don't think like be a mindless automaton. I just mean no. you but can't not to think you, in judgment. Correct. Not to judge. Right. I mean he yeah. even says directly that at one point. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, did they say why they want to terminate my command? <laughs> Dude, I love that that question is absurd to him. Uh, yeah. Whereas at, like, at this point, anybody who looks around at the, where he is is like, well, no shit. They want to fucking take out your command. But I think he's even going back further to talk about the original, you know, the crimes he was you know, charged with. Right. Yeah, it's it's funny. There's a flip side to your to to the obvious answer which you presented, which is 
you know, when, when, I, when I say that, you came at it from the Kurtz perspective, right? Which is interesting. Like, look at this place. This is why. It's obvious. But then there's also the absurdity of the answer when you think of what Willard has done. Yeah, exactly. It's so awesome. That's why this movie kills, man. It's the duality. The duality, man. <laughs> it's the duality of man, sir. <laughs> Peace pun and born to kill. <laughs> um, well, they told me that you'd gone totally insane and uh, that your methods were unsound. Are my methods unsound? I don't see any method at all. <laughs> I expected don't. someone like you. What did you expect? Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect a bill. Love that line. <laughs> that is fantastic. Because, I mean, he's pointing out another kind of grotesque fact and reality about war of how it's it's an economic thing, too, in a yeah. very specific way. This is just a business. This is just an operation. They are fucking... They got to, you know, keep things tidy. That's what you are. You're the errand boy keeping it tidy for them. It's making sure they maintain whatever things they wrote down on the paper about the, the, the way to do war the right way. Exactly. Right? Despite the fact that when you scrutinize it with ethics, it doesn't hold up. Not at based all. Based on everything the movie has shown us thus far. <laughs> right. Just right. the fucking bedlam of the whole thing. Sure. And uh, this is where uh, Hopper kind of goes bananas and he says he really likes you because he's locked up. He brings him water and he's dying, I think. He hates all this. But man, he reads poetry out loud in a voice. He likes you because you're still alive. You're going to help him, man. What are you going to say when he's gone, when he dies, right? What are you going to say about him? And he was wise, that he had plans, and he's just ranting. I mean, this guy is balls deep in Kurtz. I love it. Balls deep, dude. God. I mean, it's weird, though, too, because it's like he idolizes him, but he also acknowledges that he is just a person. Like, he hasn't bought into the, the cult of personality of thinking that Kurtz is beyond mankind. He's like, yeah, I think he's dying. Like, he says that, but mm-hmm. he's still just so enraptured by him. Yeah. And then um, we have the quick check-in on the boat, and then we have this incredible moment of a mask-wearing, again, a lot of mask stuff in this movie, a mask-wearing Kurtz dumps the decapitated head of Chef onto Willard's lap. Ugh, so freaky. And this is, you know, the scene with Chef right before that as well. He's on the boat, and he checks the radio to make sure they still have contact with, you know, the base, that they can call an airstrike if need be. And almost as if he was fucking omnipotent, Kurtz knew that he had to go down. Right. And there he goes, tossing a head into his lap. Oh, my God. Dude, also... For 1979, especially, very fucking realistic severed head shot. Yeah, that, that's Chef, man. It's 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 a what a fucking moment, man. Ugh. And he says nothing to him too. He just stares at him, tilts his chin up at him, and literally looks down at Captain Willard. They're standing and, above him. Yep. Again, right. we again with the mask. He painted his face before he went to do it. Yeah, that's true, and that's the only time we see him with a painted face. Correct. Uh, so it's almost like and he you saw is... Lance paint his face before he started acting weird, which of course yeah. he did. I've, I've just been sort of making, I've been making the prosecution rests the the bird of proof rests on prosecution. I was just challenging you a little. He's clearly acting a little weird, Lance. Right? Oh, quite. And it and it started <laughs> to really happen post you know post mask. It's right. just weird. Just weird to think about. And I mean, I think with with Lance specifically too, like. What I was talking about earlier in the movie of him being just kind of this vacant, open person, and I I meant that in the way that vacant and ready to be filled with an ideology. Like he's just kind of this floating vessel of a person. And once he runs into the aura of fucking Kurtz and his people, he just slips right into it, embraces it, happy. It's like he's almost happy to just to take on this a worldview. 
Like it's been it's been plopped into his lap, just like Chef's severed fucking head. Like I here's think, your worldview. Here's your uh, here's what you can now participate in in our our strange society. And he's just happily open to it. Yeah, I think he's a I think he's a a, a surfer who likes recreational and drug use and got drafted into the military. You know, <laughs> right? He right. has kind of a go with the flow attitude, and that's just what he does. But it's like there's never a moment. Like he's the only character who n- doesn't recoil at anything except for the one time he loses the, you know, the puppy. Um, he's just kind of floating through it all. And even uh, once you come into this scene of uh, all these people, the, these painted people with severed human heads and dead people hanging from trees everywhere, barely even notices or comments, happy to just kind of become part of that crowd, paint himself, strip himself naked just like them and mingle among it. Like he's just so open to all of it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. We go to this really interesting moment next, dude. This, this, we're gonna now fix you up. And you (laughs) almost have the music post, post chef being killed. The music has a choral quality to it. Do you notice that? That's true. Yeah. It does. And we see one of the few moments where we have, while we're dealing with Kurtz, this direct ray of sunlight, the healing energy of Christ almost, just <laughs> just bathing our boy uh, Willard here. As these people care and tend to him, they give him water and they give him rice and um, they nurse him back to health. And the, again, the choral nature of the music makes me just think of some sort of religious moment here. Yeah, this, this healing from on high because Kurtz wished it. Yeah, you know the other. There's an interesting contrast I hadn't really noticed until now, uh, and talking about it, looking at it. Uh, the other strange thing about this whole setting is that outside of Kurtz's actual, like I don't even know what you'd call them, chambers, quarters, or whatever. Uh, outside, there's people everywhere. There's tons. Tons of people, hundreds at this camp, and they're all around each other constantly. I mean, you don't really see them conversing exactly, but they're mingling and doing things. And in Kurtz's chamber, it is so isolated. You know, you you see, even when it shows other people inside there, it's shots of them standing alone. Everybody is at at kind of a remove from one another. And Kurtz is always in the darkness watching, you know, stepping away back to his own area. And everybody is at this weird remove. And I feel like that's part of... You know, I don't think that Kurtz has, in his mind, established a, a society here that is better than the, the lying society back home. I almost feel like he sees what's wrong here as well. That's why he's almost ready to die by the end of it. Mm, interesting. I like it. He's definitely a man apart, despite really the fact that these people essentially worship him like some sort of god. He is always isolated. He's always kind of in darkness. That moment right after they nurse our boy back to health this shaft of light come cuts through the darkness and he he sort of slides between being in it and not in it never fully in it for sure definitely pretty wild he's strange man he's like he's removed even from this you know seemingly the society that he's ahead of yeah yeah but um willard then is smoking he's laying down a lot of cool establishing shots of this place and um, our boy reads The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot. Ooh, I didn't even catch that. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. It goes on and on. It's a pretty, pretty cool poem. I'm not really a poem guy, but I thought it was pretty good. I only know a little bit of T.S. Eliot, and I don't know that one, <laughs> except for what he reads here. 
Meanwhile, the journalist is just sort of yapping at Willard, right? He's out there, man. He's real out. Do you know what the man's saying? It's dialectics. <laughs> it's dialectics, man. Certainty is not fractions. You don't go to the space with fractions, man. If you're going to Venus, man, you're not maybe landing here, there. You're landing here, man. Just it's fucking the, all over the place. This is the way the fucking world ends, but not with a bang, but with a whimper. <laughs> and with that, I'm fucking out of here, man. Yep. <laughs> dude, I, dude, this moment, too, from Kurtz, it's right after, um, you know, Dennis Hopper's is like, you know, there's no, there's no gray between people, man. You either love someone or you hate them. You love them or you hate them. And Kurtz fucking throws like a fruit at him and calls him a mutt. Yes. You mutt. See, that's, that's more of even what I'm thinking about as far as like Kurtz is dissatisfied with even this. Like, I don't think, I don't think Kurtz buys his own, you know, aura at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't even, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I doubt he even thinks of it that way. I agree. Yeah. I don't, I don't see him as like some Jim Jones cult leader who's like buying into his own shit and selling it to everyone else. I don't think he sees it that way at all. I think, I think by way of what he has become, he, he has, he has inadvertently created a cult of personality. Yeah, I agree. But they like he, worship him. They listen to him. Right. So, some, like so something had to take place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they follow him because I think he's just a, a strong personality, very sure uh, of himself, at least. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, uh, it's so fascinating, man, the dynamic between all these people. But but his own men as well, and, and then and then the photojournalist as well kind of got pulled into it. Yeah. And, and Willard himself gets pulled into it. Willard... Willard is in the process of deciding what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. And in a way, ooh, boy, kind of jumping to the end, but I think there's um, an argument to be had that maybe Willard does come under the sway of Kurtz and, and, you know, his power, his magnetism, whatever you want to call it, and actually goes along with what Kurtz wants by killing him. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't think that is an argument. I think that's the reality. I mean, yeah, he does, he does describe it in that, in that I way. I think he on. explicitly says it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, we have here, um, where, you know, I've seen horrors, horrors that you've seen, but you have no right to call me a murderer, but you have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that, but you have no right to judge me. Ooh. Goddamn, dude, that's powerful shit. There are layers upon layers upon layers within that statement. And in the movie, and that statement is the movie. Yeah. That, it's almost like you have a right to act and to to will yourself into whatever you have the strength to accomplish, but you don't have the right to judge. Yeah, kill me, but don't pretend it's for anything other than the desire to do so. Yes, your individual choice to Correct. kill me. Right. That's the honesty that Kurtz believes in. Exactly. I think that's the only real tenet that he even has. Um, it's impossible for words to describe what is, I'm going to not say it with the same beats and pauses because it'll take too long. Um, what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. Horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. I remember when I was in the Special Forces, seen, seems thousands of centuries ago, went to a camp to inoculate some children, and we left the camp after we had inoculated the children for polio, and this old man came running after us. He was crying, and he couldn't see. We went back, and they had hacked off every inoculated arm. There they were in a pile of little arms, and I remember I cried. I wept like some grandmother. I wanted to tear my teeth out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
I want to remember it. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget. And I realized I was shot with a diamond bullet through my head. My God, the genius of it. The genius of the will to do it. Perfect, genuine, complete, crystal, and pure. There I realized that they were stronger than we because they could stand it. They were, they were, these were not monsters. These were men trained. These men who fought with their hearts, who have families and children, who are filled with love, but they have strength, the strength to do that. And if I had 10 divisions of those men, our troubles here would be over very quickly. You have to have men who are moral and at the same time who are able to utilize their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment, because it is judgment that defeats us. I worry that my son might not understand what I've tried to be. And if I were to be killed, Willard, I would want someone to go to my home and tell him everything. Everything I did, everything you saw, because there is nothing that I detest more than the stench of lies. And if you understand me, Willard, you will do this for me. Mm, mm, mm. Delicious. So much going on there, man. <laughs> Utterly God, delicious. What a fucking story about the village, too. And just the idea of these people's will to oppose the the intruders to the ab to the utmost to cut off their own children's arms in defiance of we want nothing from you mm. like that is I mean it's horrible yeah, yeah if you're gonna make a moral judgment of it it is a horrible thing but as, just from the the pure objectified remove uh, of looking at it as a as an action as a choice that is a powerful will uh, to I mean like I see what he's saying of like absolutely to, res- to resist. The, the occupiers to the absolute utmost. We won't even take your fucking inoculation if I have to cut my fucking kid's arm off. That is that is a level of, of will and determination that I, I think most people can't muster. That is absolutely zero surrender. Yeah, 100%. There I is no fucking... capitulation. There is we will drag each other screaming into the darkness. It does not matter. This is how it will be. Right. I if you I know? die my fucking kid will pick up the sword and keep fighting against It's it's this you. idea like you're in some occupied territory and these soldiers come by and they're going to drag your fucking daughter off and you go nope and you shoot her. The utter defiance of that action. Right. I'm not going to judge that action. I'm just saying part of my head understands that. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know? I see, I see what he's saying. Holy, holy shit! Did I just, I'm just realizing, is this the podcast where Matt and Dean <laughs> fled into the night of the jungle and started their call with Curtis? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm not going to let you take my daughter yeah, to one like, of your exactly, to your man. barracks where she can be beaten and raped repeatedly for God knows how long before you cast her aside. I will decide when she dies, not you. That's yeah. the ultimate defiance. That is such renegade gangster shit, man. It's true. It's fucked and, up. And, but. and also knowing like you have to kill your own child and knowing that you are immediately going to be killed after that too. Like <laughs> death is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimate defiance. That's, but that's what he's talking about. It, you know, um, it's, it, they talk about it in Usual Suspects. Do you remember it? Mm, what's the scene? It's a scene where they're talking about the legend. Oh, wait, of, no, Usual Suspects I haven't seen. Okay. Well, there's a scene where they're talking about the, the, the legend of Kaiser Soze. And Kaiser Zose is at home one day with his with his wife and his daughter, and um, and all this shit. And um, these gangsters show up to like they're gonna fuck him up. They're gonna kill him. They're gonna kill his family. They're gonna take his daughter and all this shit. And he turns the gun and kills his kid and wife, and then kills all of the hitmen. And Damn. he says, "Nope, you're not gonna choose." Um, because they were holding them at gunpoint. He's like, "Nope, you're not gonna. Hey, you're gonna kill them anyway, and you're not gonna take them away." And it was just that utter, like, whoa. 
That is so fucking gnarly, man. Right. So deep. That is that is a a person beyond the most people's even conception of morality. Yep. Um, so there's that part of it, which is a fascinating discussion. And then there's also the, the judgment part of it, or which, which you've already talked about. You know, you can't, I, I don't want to be judged. Judge, judgment is what defeats us. Yeah, yeah. And, he, you know, I, I think that's also part of their quote, his quote when he's talking about, like, these were men with, you know, wives and children and love. They yes. loved them. Yes. They, these aren't men incapable of love. These aren't monsters. These are that's just right. men with a, an iron will. That's right. Pretty wild, man. And yeah, and at the heart of all of this, like we've been talking about the whole podcast, is this idea of of honesty, of the honesty of those individual choices versus the idea of I'm just following my orders from some guy somewhere and committing war. We could use a dose of honesty in this world now. You know, it's funny. You oh, think for just sure. just think about just think about just think about the way politicians interact with social media at large and how it is all just bullshit. <laughs> There's nothing honest about any of it ever. It's all it's all pandering always. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. never it never is. It's fucking gross, man. God. Yeah. It's nuts. Fucking age. It's wild. But um this is our mo- this is where we have uh, another kind of baptism, right? This emergement emergence from the water with the mask. Another Dude, mask. Totally. Yeah. Our third and mask. I'm trying to remember the quote right before that. There's an interesting quote right before he uh, comes out of the water. Fuck, he's talking I have about it. the jungle. I, I've had him. I have it all written down. I think. All right, baby. Oh, you know what? It is? I think he was talking about the jungle is the only thing whose orders he follows. Yeah, they were going to make me a major for this, and I wasn't even in the army anymore. Everyone wanted me to do it. None more than him. I felt like he was up there waiting for me to take the pain away. He just wanted to go out like a soldier, not like some poor, wasted, rag-assed renegade. Even the jungle wanted him dead, and that's who he really took his orders from anyway. Exactly. The jungle itself wanted him dead, and the jungle produces a man to kill him, a.k.a. Captain Willard out of the water. Yep, even the jungle wanted him dead. And out of the water, again, that's this sort of, it, it signifies this birth unto darkness in this particular moment. Absolutely. He kills the fucking guard. Yep. Cuts him. I mean, the machete approach too. Boy. Oof. Doesn't want to shoot him. Yeah. What a fucking way to go. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the timing, again, of the fucking attack as we intercut with the bull being just... Oof. It's Ugh. fucking tough to watch, man. It is. And it's almost it's almost more brutal than anything they could show with, you know, makeup effects, you know, of of, of oh, Kurtz being you attacked. Mean, oh, is this you mean actually murdering uh butchering the cow on stage on screen, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or it's like <laughs> showing that has a far more visceral effect than any practical or makeup effect you could come up with on yep. Kurtz, you know, like just reminding us of that's what real death looks like. We train young men to drop fire on people, but their commanders will allow them to write fuck on the airplanes because it's obscene. That's one of the last things he says. Yeah. Except for the horror. The horror. Oh, God. What a fucking ending, man. So hardcore. Seriously is. I mean, goddamn. As we've been talking about, like, is, is there a more hardcore fucking movie? Like, Jesus Christ. It's pretty hardcore. The fucking, an actual bull killed on screen while he fucking chops down Marlon Brando. <laughs> Apocalypse God. now, baby. Apocalypse now. Jesus um, Christ. But, but we should probably just mention the refusal to take up the mantle. Right. 
pretty right. cool, right? Because he almost emerges and and suddenly is the new Kurtz, but makes a decision to not pursue that. Right. And they all put down their weapons. That's what I'm saying. They're they're submitting to his authority, I believe. Yeah. But he and they don't they don't try to stop him. They don't try to follow him out or anything. Like once he puts down his weapon, they put down theirs and it is done. Like he just can leave. Takes fucking silly ass Lance by the hand, who's just having a grand old fucking time. Yep. Throws down his machete and uh, climbs above the boat. And back into the night they go, down the river. What do you think made, what do you think made Willard different from Kurtz for his decision not to stay? Mm. Because he's very similar, right? It's a pretty wild thought. Really? No, I agree. That's, damn, that's an excellent question, man. God, I don't even know. I really, I don't even have a fucking speculation for that one. I, I, I think maybe just that the fact that Willard is not quite as far down the path mentally as as Kurtz is and seeing the place where cuz I mean at this point looking at Kurtz is a is looking at a potential future for him it's almost like he's looking ahead in time at a at a possible outcome of his life mm. and just being like I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he maintained he maintained something of his personality in those moments. Right. Cuz I mean what does he know about Kurtz at this point that Kurtz was basically just ready to die. Fucking let him let himself be chopped to pieces. Yeah, his only with his only enemy, judgment. Right? Is that what it was? That's it. Yeah. That's fucking wild to think about. Right? Think about that for a minute. If judgment is your only, who judges a god? Ooh, yeah, good point. So Nobody let me ask you a- this: What happens if you are, if you do judge somebody? You suddenly do you, do you suddenly strip them of their of their godlike power? It's kind of cool to think about. That's true. But does like, he ever like he's judge almost Kurtz? A, no, no, he hasn't, but the army exactly. has, and, he, and, and yeah. he is there. Yeah. And and, mm. and that is what leads to his defeat. It's pretty wild. That's true. But a defeat that he accepted. Yes, he was ready. And I think that's, to be honest, I think that's how he beats judgment. By, you know, judgment Acquiescing wants to... Acquiescing to, uh, to, to wanting to be taken away from the pain, so to speak. No, I think he beats judgment because... What the military wants is to punish him, to punish him for his right, actions, right. to to defeat him and take away his life because with the assumption that he wants his life. And for him to offer up his life and say, I don't care, take it, defeats the judgment of saying we will punish you. I see. Yeah, this goes back to that's, – that's a great point because I think what you're highlighting there is chopping off the arms of the children. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right? dude. Yeah, excellent. That's yep. a great point. That you, I will fucking dismember myself before I let you judge and dismember me. For sure. Good shit. Good shit. Whew. Damn, dude. What a fucking good movie. Great fucking movie. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love if it. You need- Love it. You you know what? You can really tell. I feel like people listening to the podcast can tell when we love a movie, when we like make no jokes. <laughs> There's like no, we're just fucking balls deep in this bitch. Because I just I I can't pull myself away from the my mental framework that I'm in, totally. and there's just yeah, so me much too. meat on the bone. I have so much, tons. Ah, oh, it's so fucking good. <laughs> it's so fucking good, man. Yeah, <sighs> great movie. Mm, listener comments, man. Yes, you go first because I gotta pull them up. All right, Russell Wright. There's so much going on in this that you could hit a record a record long podcast. Well, unfortunately, we don't because uh, <laughs> we ain't got time for that shit anymore. Heart of Darkness, the doc on it is fascinating. My favorite theory in the film is the idea that the only sane person in it is Kurtz. 
He's the only one who understands the nature of the war and how it can be won. Final scenes with the execution juxtaposed with that of the water buffalo also gives the ending of a very Greek tragedy structure and staging. Good stuff, Russell. I think we talked a little bit about Kurtz um, having a purity of vision, even if you don't necessarily agree with his methods. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to read a quick one from Tom Anderson. This is the one I've been waiting for. The stories from making from the making of Apocalypse Now are even crazier than the film itself. There is a great documentary about it, well worth checking out. Um, and I do believe that's called Hearts of Darkness, uh, the making of Apocalypse Now. Mm. Um, but dude, we didn't even talk about Martin Sheen had a damn near fatal heart attack while filming this. No shit. Yeah, how old was yeah. he? Nah, not terrible. I think in his mid-40s. Like not is old, he that old, old there? I thought he was younger. It may, it late 30s, early 40s, I think. Um, Just from stress. Right. Um, wow. And this is what's, what's even crazier. Martin Sheen's brother, Joe Estevez, filled in for him for six weeks while he recovered and also provided voiceovers needed for Sheen's character. Even Francis Ford Coppola admits that now he can't tell which scenes are Joe and which are Martin. What the fu- What a surreal fucking doppelganger aspect to the, even the production of this fucking thing. Christmas, man. Like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So crazy. Yeah, it's funny. You know, there's so much production stuff, but I kind of was like, I didn't find myself discovering anything new, so I kind of just avoided it in favor of the rest of the stuff that needed to be discussed. Isn't that crazy? Like, we probably could have spotted off about a bunch of the production shit going on in this, but I was like, I don't know if we have time. I just want to, I want to get into the, just the, 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 just everything. There's so much oh, to it. So much. You know, another quick, uh, just like production note, I read that just now that I think it's pretty interesting. The budget of the movie was getting pretty out of control at some, at one point, and they were filming this. It was released in 79, but yep. uh, principal photography was happening in 77. Uh, and when they were having budget problems, his uh, his old friend, Francis Coppola's old friend, George Lucas, just had Star Wars come out. And so he sent him a telegram saying, can I have some money? <laughs> so Star Wars helped save Apocalypse Now. And we should Fuck also, yeah. we should also, if we don't say the name, we will be sad. John fucking Milius. Ooh, is he involved in this? A screenwriter. Oh, Fuck, I didn't even notice that. The man's man. Goddamn John Milius. The man's man. We talked a lot about him on the Conan the Barbarian soundtrack. Soundtrack. Podcast. <laughs> if you wanna <laughs> Wow, Dean just fucking betrayed his true love. If you wanna go, um if you wanna go uh listen to it, we give him a real good suck job. John Milius. Oh, yeah. Walter Sochek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <gasps> awesome. Oh, well that was a uh that was a meaty and delicious treat. Um, yum, yum, dude. Yummy. A very meaty and a very delicious treat. Hope you guys um, enjoyed it, man. I don't know. That was a that was a fun pod to talk about. That was intense. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sore, bro. I'm fucking jazzed. I'm, I'm jazzed up from that one. That was uh, that was quite the episode. Hell yeah, man. Great movie. Apocalypse good conversation. Now. Yep. I'm glad. Uh, in retrospect, I guess I'm glad it won. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, yeah. Continuing in this vein of incredible cinema, we're going to be talking about Men in Black next week. So oh, wow. stay tuned for me being uh, three sheets to the wind on that one and making lots of jokes. <laughs> yeah, if this was a, a very somber, serious uh, flavored episode of the Science Fiction Film Podcast, well, prepare to fucking loosen your pants. Come next week. Yeah. Men in oh, Black, baby. followed by Munich. <laughs> we can get back to the fucking Revenge of the Jews. Wow. From yep. darkness to fucking I slipped on a banana peel and fell on a rake, back to utter darkness. 
<laughs> and then we'll do uh, animated Transformers, and then we'll bang things out with uh, The Witch, which I'm highly looking Ooh, forward yeah. to, and then Legend. Wow. Fuck yes, dude. I'm so ready for Legend. Loved by the sun. <laughs> All <right>. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get out of here. You guys have a wonderful evening. Thank you for everything. Thanks to everyone who voted. And don't forget to check us out on the web at LibertyStreetGeek.net. Guys, share the stuff. It's word of mouth business. Tell the world about us and uh, help mm. propel us into the stratosphere. Yes, and bring more followers into our jungle cult. Thank you very much. Yo, we'll see horror, you out there. The horror. <laughs> we'll see you in the yellow mist. <laughs>